This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 62. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. And if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Now, more than any other moment in our lifetime. That's not Baghdad. That's not Aleppo. That's Washington, D.C. That's the sound of tear gas canisters and flash grenades fired at peaceful protesters in Washington, D.C., firing on them to clear a path so that President Trump could walk to St. John's Church in one of the most bizarre and disturbing scenes of our lifetime. American police, National Guard, and active duty military clashing with American protesters in our nation's capital and all across America. From coast to coast, in cities big and small, America is on fire. On fire with anger, on fire with frustration, on fire with division, on fire with pain. America is on fire. And America is at war with itself. Our forever war started after 9-11 and spanned Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, Libya, Niger. Tens of thousands of dead on all sides. Hundreds of thousands wounded. Cities flattened. Futures crushed. Now our forever war has finally come home to our own shores. It's blasting holes and destroying lives, businesses, families, and futures in New York, Minneapolis, Los Angeles, Portland, Nashville, Indianapolis, St. Louis, Iowa City, and dozens of cities all across the country. At least 12 people have died. American cities look like war zones, and they sound like war zones. That's not Afghanistan. It's Iowa City. That was the scene in Iowa City. And it wasn't Al-Qaeda or ISIS that brought the forever war home. It was our own inability to face systemic racism. It was the inability of our political leaders to solve problems for generations, and especially since 9-11. It was the inability of our president, governors, and mayors to stop a predictable pandemic. And it was Donald J. Trump ripping, shredding, stomping, spitting, and drooling through our Constitution, into our media, around our Congress, through our military, and deep into the soul of our people. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. 
Don't catch you slipping, no. This is America 2020. Protesters are angry. Police are angry. Mothers are angry. Fathers are angry. Cities are burning. Tempers are flaring. Tensions are hot. The virus is spreading. Troops are marching. Americans are dying. And it's not even officially summer yet. But the heat is rising fast. And after a scrubbing of the first run, the rocket has launched. The candle has been lit on the SpaceX NASA rocket and on America's summer of fire and fury. The political fires are raging. They may cleanse the forest of the dead brush so a stronger, bigger forest can grow. Or they might destroy the land to the point that nothing ever grows there again. But the fires are raging and growing. And there have never been more angry Americans. Understandably. When we launched last year, this show, and the title especially, were clearly ahead of their time. I saw a dangerous path America was on under the presidency of Donald Trump. And I warned you that things could get very bad, very fast. But what we've seen in the last week is more dangerous, more divisive, more vulnerability-inducing than anything we've ever seen. The fire is hot and getting hotter. And Donald Trump is pouring more and more political and social gasoline on it by the minute. I will fight to protect you. I am your president of law and order. He's not our president of law and order. He's our president of mayhem, always has been, always will be, and especially right now. As America screams, he doesn't listen. He screams back with tear gas, threats of military deployments, and a complete and total disregard for the foundational values of our country. As Americans cry, bleed, and die in the streets, he makes it worse. With every move he makes, with every step he takes, he makes it worse. I'm a fire starter, He's the fire starter. President Mayhem is always the fire starter. The kid who lights the cherry bomb and flushes it down the toilet. The kid who calls the bomb threat into the school. The kid who makes up chaos because he can to play tough guy, and to hurt and disrupt others. The Fargus from Christmas Story. The fire starter. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) Fire, 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 fire. (laughs) In the midst of all the chaos, he tweeted, because he's always tweeting, these thugs are dishonoring the memory of George Floyd, and I won't let that happen. Just spoke to Governor Tim Walz, and I told him that the military is with him all the way. Any difficulty, and we will assume control. But when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Thank you. When the looting starts, the shooting starts? No doubt President Mayhem would find a way to make all of this worse very quickly. And boy, did he. As protesters gathered outside the White House, he threatened them on Twitter, saying that they would, quote, have been greeted with the most vicious dogs and most ominous weapons I have ever seen. That's exactly what Saddam Hussein used to do and threaten. That's the language of oppression. That's the language of sicking dogs on people in places like Baghdad and Selma. This would be a very good time for Twitter to finally do the right thing and shut down President Mayhem's account. 
Because as the protesters gather, the president threatens. While CNN reporter Omar Jimenez and his crew were arrested on national TV, and countless journalists were shot at, assaulted, and brutalized in an environment where the president calls the press the enemy of the state and failed to take responsibility, some leaders did step up. Leaders like Minnesota Governor Tim Walz. Uh, I take full responsibility. There is absolutely no reason something like this should happen. Calls were made immediately. This is a very public apology to that team. It should not happen. And I want to be clear for those of you listening. I think our Minnesota's reporters know this. Um, I am a teacher by trade, and I have spent my time as governor highlighting the need to be as transparent as possible and have the press here. I failed you last night in that. And it does not escape me that we are here on the catalyst that lit this spark by what happened with a police detainment of George Floyd and the idea that a reporter would have been taken while another police action was in play is inexcusable. So to CNN, to the CNN team, to the journalists here, um, this is about having a plan. And that's what these folks are going to talk about. This is about having an aggressive approach to understanding what the community needs, to not coming in heavy handed with them, but to create space where the story can be told. In a situation like this, even if you're clearing an area, we have got to ensure that there is a safe spot for journalism to tell the story. I've known Tim Walls for a long time. He's a good man and a tested military veteran. And now he's facing some of the biggest tests possible as a leader. Every time he was tested on the House Veterans Affairs Committee, he rose to the moment, year after year. And I'm confident he can do the same again now. And he has. But he's facing an uphill battle. And CNN is in the spotlight, too. Much more on that later. But CNN and all other journalists need to be respected and protected. Governor Tim Walz spent over 20 years in the Minnesota National Guard. He's the rare governor that commands the same National Guard that he himself once served in. That critical background is guiding his decisions now. He understands force and the capabilities and limitations of force. One of the lone former military leaders turned politicians in the spotlight right now is also one of the least heavy-handed. Having a military background would be useful for politicians right now. There's a lot of coordination of forces and quick decision-making needed. And expertise. Because things are bad. There's no spin in that. And there are more angry Americans than ever before. And for good reason. The brutal, cold-blooded murder of George Floyd has ripped the tourniquet off a potentially fatal wound. And the blood is boiling. And the blood is pouring. But even in this darkest of moments, there's light. There's many that are turning the righteous anger into positive impact. From the middle school kids marching, to the protesters in jail right now, to the cops doing the right thing, to the leaders adding the light, to the children who are inspired by this moment. There is good that can come out of this terrible, painful moment. There is unity, there is constructive planning, there is change, and there is power. That's something you won't see or hear on cable TV. 
It's thousands of people in Washington, D.C. peacefully protesting in unity and positivity to offer calm to the storm, to offer light to the heat, to put out the fire and to de-escalate the tension. Thousands of people, blocks from the White House, under the threat of rubber bullets and tear gas coming together as one, truly as one. And these are not just black protests. They're black, brown, white, and every shade of America together in support of black Americans, but also in support of our collective future. A better America for black people is a better America for all people and a stronger America for all people. And it's the ultimate defense against our enemies, foreign and domestic. Hey, little girl, is your daddy home? Did he go and leave you all alone? I got a bad desire. Because make no mistake, America is on fire. And make no mistake, our enemies are celebrating. Putin is celebrating. Kim Jong-un is celebrating. ISIS is celebrating. And don't think they're not involved. My friend Molly McHugh, writer and lecturer on Russian influence and information warfare, put out a message this week that we should all remember. Please be mindful in posting and sharing videos of protest and related content. There's a lot of content coming from unclear origins, meant to capitalize on our current mood. Our enemies are loving all this chaos. They want more of this chaos. They're pushing for this chaos and the misuse of our military. Instead of deploying our military to protect our shores, instead of deploying our military to stop a humanitarian disaster overseas, instead of deploying our military to test millions of Americans for coronavirus, our commander-in-chief wants to deploy our military to intimidate, to bully, and to repress free speech, and to thrust our military into harm's way in a more difficult situation than they've ever seen. As a soldier in the army, my men and I faced angry mobs of Iraqi civilians and showed restraint, even when we were threatened, even when we were instigated. But it wasn't nearly as difficult as what the men and women in the National Guard and police forces across America have to face right now. And most are doing a tough job well. But too many are not. Too many are wrong. Too many lose their cool. Too many never should have been cops in the first place. They're over-militarized. They're over-equipped. They're over-hyped. And they're overused. That's why arresting and trying four cops to kill George Floyd is just a step. As a nation, we need to dismantle and rebuild our policies, our laws, our police departments, our courtrooms, our prison system, our school systems, our public housing systems, and all our systems. That's the overdue, difficult, necessary change that must come. And this is the time. It's time to finally replace the racist systems and the racist president. New leaders can drive the new systems. And it's time for new leaders to rise to the moment. Leaders must rise. And as the heat continues to rise on the streets, online, and in communities nationwide, three huge fires will burn that will determine the future of America and the world. The presidential election of 2020 is just five months away. A coronavirus vaccine is an unknown number of months, maybe years away. The protests have been sparked, and they're not going away until real change happens. 
Until the election is settled, America will remain on fire, and likely for a while afterwards. No matter who wins, that fire will burn hot through the fall, into the inauguration in January, and likely into the winter. And so will the pandemic. Until we have a vaccine, America will remain on fire. As the protests and instability grow and evolve, so does the virus. Like a parallel brush fire, it'll flare up and burn down, but never truly be extinguished until we have a vaccine, if we have a vaccine. The Trump administration has now picked five companies as the most likely candidates to produce a vaccine. Moderna, the combination of Oxford University and AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, Merck, and Pfizer. The White House is hoping for a vaccine by the end of the year. But I wouldn't give away all your Purell just yet. Developing vaccines is very tough. It often takes a decade. So the pandemic will continue. And from Occupy Wall Street to Black Lives Matter to the national anthem kneeling to whatever we call this new evolution, the protests will continue too. They'll evolve and overlap. Movements within movements, fires within fires. And these three fires will burn hot through the hottest summer in modern American history and likely through the end of the year. The election, the virus, the protests, overlapping each other, fueling each other, stalling each other, intermingling, cooperating, co-opting, competing, destroying, and building, refreshing and exhausting, burning at the same place at times and in different places in others. They'll either be like three horsemen of the American apocalypse or three tests we pass to redefine a better future. Three crucibles we survive to emerge on the other side, stronger at the broken places. So get your sunscreen, wear a hat, charge up the Freon in your AC, and drink lots of water. Because the three infernos of 2020 are not burning out. They're just getting cooking. So hold tight. Hold tight. Three fires of 2020 are here. We can let them burn down the house or keep them contained at the fire line, but they're here. They'll be filled with flameouts and filled with lights to guide us through the smoke. They'll be filled with arsonists and filled with firefighters, filled with villains and filled with helpers. And when the fires burn the hottest, look for the helpers. Even in times like this, especially in times like this, the helpers are out there, the ones who can bring the light to contrast the heat. Helpers like our guest in this episode, the inspiring Brooke Baldwin. Brooke Baldwin is the dynamic host of CNN Newsroom, the daily news show on CNN seen worldwide. She's beloved by people of all backgrounds. Brooke is a journalist with tenacity and heart and fire. She doesn't just cover stories. She feels them like a daily warm-hearted contrast to President Mayhem's daily icy heart. Brooke has the unique ability to channel the emotions of her audience like few TV journalists can. And recently, she became one of the first TV journalists in America to share that she tested positive for the coronavirus. She shared her struggle. She was open about her pain. And she came out on the other side advocating for all of us. For over a decade, Brooke's covered breaking news with empathy, focus, humor, and warmth. And after the pandemic hit, she became the news. And she approached it with the same openness, candor, and humility that's defined her career. She's back on the air now, two months after the virus brought her to her knees. Now, she's risen back up, 
She's holding leaders accountable. She's telling the stories of struggling Americans. And now she has the unique perspective of covering the virus that she herself experienced. And she has the unique perspective of covering rioters attacking CNN's headquarters in Atlanta, the same place she grew up. As the fires burn and rise across America, Brooke joins us to assess the damage, share tips on survival, and inspire us to find a path out of the flames. In this episode, we'll focus on another key front line of our war against the virus. We'll talk to someone who's had it, and someone who got it while working at CNN, a place that sits in the crosshairs of all three of those ferocious infernos. As the election smolders, the pandemic cools, and the protests rage, CNN sits on a fire tower above them all, or surrounded by them all. And for two hours every day in that fire tower, Brooke Baldwin has the watch. And what's it like to cover the virus when you have the virus? What's it like to cover the riots when they're rioting inside the doors of the place you work? What's it like to report on the president as he attacks your network and your colleagues daily? In this episode, we'll explore what the virus does to the human body and what it's done to our body politic. And we'll explore the other outbreaks that are infecting the nation. Racism, police brutality, looting, and of course, the stupid. But we'll also explore a new outbreak that's spreading across America. Activism. Spreading even faster than the coronavirus, and maybe even faster than the stupid, activism is contagious. People are in the streets. Just as most cops aren't shooting protesters in the face with rubber bullets, most protesters aren't breaking the windows of a Nike store to snatch up a new pair of Air Jordans. The media is sensationalizing this moment like it does all others, maybe even more. But the better parts of it also reveal the truth. Share the science, provide desperately needed oversight, spread information, celebrate stories of triumph and love, and encourage people to step out of their comfort zone and into the arena. Most of the protests are peaceful, most are creative, and most are one-way on-ramps into activism. Broad, open on-ramps of access to a new superhighway of political awakening, local activism, and national change. That's what movements do. They grow like a wildfire. From the modern marijuana reform movement, to the gay rights change of the last decade, to the civil rights movement of the 1960s, to the suffragists at the turn of the 1900s, to the abolitionists in the late 1800s, to so many other movements from the founding of our country, the muscles of America were constructively torn down and rebuilt by wave after wave of social movement. Wildfires that raged, sometimes out of control, other times with controlled burns that ripped down the old to create space for the new. The dismantling of the Jesse Helms of the world so the Barack Obamas could grow. The fire has been burning for a long time. We didn't start it. Fire's always been burning, in the U.S. and worldwide, and fire, like anger, is powerful. It can be dangerous and destructive, or powerfully life-saving. And each of us has to decide if we'll use our own personal lighter to set a flame that burns down a house and lights a Molotov cocktail, or sparks a campfire that helps us survive a cold winter, cook our food, and light our way. But before we get to our conversation with Brooke Baldwin, there are some issues that have me fired up. Issues that have me angry, have others angry, and should have everyone angry. Because the heat is rising, and the fire is here. So what's your power? What's my power? Stand back. Flame on! Whoa! 
and the fire is hot everywhere. But nowhere is it hotter than in the streets of cities big and small all across America. Like hot cars with the windows rolled up in the summer, our cities are brewing and steaming and dangerous. Talk to me so you can see All four Minnesota police officers involved in George Floyd's death have now been charged. A memorial service to honor George Floyd will be held in Minneapolis as protesters continue to rally across the U.S. following his killing. And in Atlanta, officers have been charged. Six Atlanta police officers are charged with using excessive force during an arrest of two college students at a protest. And over 10,000 people have been arrested nationwide as protests continue. And most are peaceful and positive and increasingly organized, increasingly united, and increasingly peaceful. And powerful voices are emerging and rising to the moment. Leadership comes in many forms. Helpers step up in many ways, from many different backgrounds. And that includes rapper, activist, and entrepreneur, Killer Mike. I'm going to play the whole thing, because that's the power of podcasting. I can play the whole thing without a shitty commercial in between it, because you need to hear what Killer Mike said. You need to process it. You need to share it. Here's Killer Mike in Atlanta, flanked by the mayor and the police chief. I didn't want to come, and I don't want to be here. I'm the son of an Atlanta City police officer. Uh, My cousin is an Atlanta City police officer, and my other cousin, East Point police officer. And I got a lot of love and respect for police officers down to the original eight police officers in Atlanta that even after becoming police had to dress in a YMCA because white officers didn't want to get dressed with niggers. And here we are 80 years later. I watched a white officer assassinate a black man. And I know that tore your heart out. And I know it's crippling. And I have nothing positive to say in this moment because I don't want to be here. But I'm responsible to be here because it wasn't just Dr. King and people dressed nicely who marched and protested to progress this city and so many other cities. It was people like my grandmother, people like my aunts and uncles who were members of SCLC and NAACP, and in particular, Reverend James Orange, Mrs. Alice Johnson, and Reverend Love, who we just lost last year. So I'm duty-bound to be here to simply say that it is your duty not to burn your own house down for anger with an enemy. It is your duty to fortify your own house so that you may be a house of refuge in times of organization. And now is the time to plot, plan, strategize, organize, and mobilize. It is time to beat up prosecutors you don't like at the voting booth. It is time to hold mayoral offices accountable, chiefs and deputy chiefs. Atlanta is not perfect, but we're a lot better than we ever were, and we're a lot better than cities are. I'm mad as hell. I woke up wanting to see the world burn down yesterday because I'm tired of seeing black men die. He casually put his knee on a human being's neck for nine minutes 
as he died like a zebra in the clutch of a lion's jaw. And we watch it like murder porn over and over again. So that's why children are burning to the ground. They don't know what else to do. And it is the responsibility of us to make this better right now. We don't want to see one officer charged. We want to see four officers prosecuted and sentenced. We don't want to see targets burning. We want to see the system that sets up for systemic racism burnt to the ground. And as I sit here in Georgia, home of Stevens, Georgia, former vice president of the Confederacy, white man said that law, fundamental law stated that whites were naturally the superior race and the Confederacy was built on a cornerstone. It's called a cornerstone speech, look it up. The cornerstone speech that blacks would always be subordinate. That officer believed that speech because he killed that man like an animal. In this city, officers have done horrendous things and they have been prosecuted. This city's cut different. In this city, you can find over 50 restaurants owned by black women. I didn't say minority and I didn't say women of color. So after you burn down your own home, what do you have left but char and ash? CNN, Ted did a great thing. I love CNN, I love Cartoon Network, but I'd like to say to CNN right now, karma's a mother. Stop feeding fear and anger every day. Stop making people feel so fearful, give them hope. I'm glad they only took down a sign and defaced a building and they're not killing human beings like that policeman did. I'm glad that they only destroyed some brick and mortar and they didn't rip a father from a son. They didn't rip a, fa a son from a mother like the policeman did. When a man yells for his mother in duress and pain and she's dead, he is essentially yelling, please, God, don't let it happen to me. And we watch that. So my question for us on the other side of this camera is after it burns, Will we be left with charred or will we rise like a phoenix out of the ashes that Atlanta has always done? Will we use this as a moment to say that we will not do what other cities have done and in fact we will get better than we've been? We got good enough to destroy cash bonds. You don't have to worry about going to jail for some petty. We got smart enough to decriminalize marijuana. How smart are we going to be in the next 15 or 20 years to keep us ahead of this curve? So that much like when South Africa suffered apartheid, you had Andy and other politicians that could make sure that Atlanta said, Coca-Cola, we love you. But if you don't pull out of South Africa, we're going to leave. We're not going to drink Coca-Cola anymore. Coca-Cola jumped on their side and apartheid ended. So we have an opportunity now because I'm mad. I don't have any good advice. But what I can tell you is that if you sit in your homes tonight, instead of burning your home to the ground, you will have time to properly plot, plan, strategize, and organize, and mobilize in an effective way. And two of the most effective ways is first taking your butt to the computer and making sure you fill out your census so that people know who you are and where you are. The next thing is making sure you exercise your political bully power and going to local elections and beating up the politicians that you don't like. You got a prosecutor sent your partner to jail and you know it was bullshit, put a new prosecutor in there. Now's your election to do it. You want a different senator that's more progressive that pulls marijuana through? Now is the time to do that. But it is not time to burn down your own home. 
I love and I respect you. I hate I don't have more to say. I hate I can't fix it in a snap. I hate Atlanta's not perfect for as good as we are. But we have to be better than this moment. We have to be better than burning down our own homes. Because if we lose Atlanta, what else we got? We lose an ability to plot, to plan, to strategize, to organize, and to properly mobilize. I want you to go home. I want you to talk to 10 of your friends. I want you guys to come up with real solutions. I would like for the Atlanta City Police Department to bring back the Community Review Board, one that Alice Johnson was formerly under, under Chief Turner. We need a review board before an officer does some stupid shit. We need to get ahead of it. That's my recommendation to my mayor and my chief. Let's get a review board, let's get ahead of it, and let's give them power. We don't need an officer that makes a mistake once, twice, three times, and finally he kills a boy on national TV, and the next thing you know, the country is burning down. We don't need a dumbass president repeating what segregationists said. You start looting, we start shooting. But the problem is some officers black and some people gonna shoot back. And that's not good for our community either. I love and respect you all. I hope that we find a way out of it because I don't have the answers, but I do know we must plot, we must plan, we must strategize, organize, and mobilize. Thank you for allowing me some time to speak. I'd like to appreciate our chief for what she said on YouTube. I thought it was very bold to do. I'd like to appreciate our mayor for talking to us like a black mama and telling us to take our ass at home. And I'd like to, talk, like to thank my friend for convincing me to come here. And I'll defer to Joe Beasley now because he knows a hell of a lot more than we do. Thank you. <laughs> that is what leadership sounds like. His righteous anger is the righteous anger of millions. And his message is the message of this moment. And his call to action is the one to define us. Will we burn down the right things? And will we rise from the ashes like a phoenix? I hope Killer Mike runs for office. I hope he can run for Senate from Georgia against Kelly Loeffler. She's a corrupt hack that insider traded before the pandemic hit. I'd like to see Killer Mike run against her and beat her. I don't care what party he runs from. And Senator Killer Mike, it just sounds kind of badass, right? And it's not impossible. In June 2015, Mike ran briefly as a writing candidate to become the representative from Georgia's 55th district in the Georgia House of Representatives. He pulled out quickly, but I hope he runs again. He can bring light to the heat. Like another leader who's finally reemerged from the smoke and is, per usual, rising to the moment, Barack Obama. We need President Barack Obama's voice of calm and wisdom right now more than ever. Now, I, I want to speak directly to the young men and women of color in this country uh, who, as Plan just so eloquently described, have witnessed too much violence and too much death. And too often, some of that violence has come uh, from folks who were supposed to be serving and protecting you. Um, I want you to know that you matter. I want you to know that your lives matter, that your dreams matter. And when I go home and I look at the faces of my daughters, Sasha and Malia, and I look at my nephews and nieces, I see limitless potential that deserves to flourish and thrive. And you should be able to learn and make mistakes and live a life of joy without having to worry about what's going to happen when you walk to the store or go for a jog or are driving down the street uh, or looking at some birds in a park. Uh, and, and, and so I hope that you also feel help, hopeful, even as you may feel angry, because you have the power to make things better and you have 
helped to make the entire country feel uh, as if this is something that's got to change. You, you've communicated a sense of urgency uh, that is as powerful and as transformative as anything that I've seen uh, in recent years. And always a true organizer, a master communicator, and a thoughtful teacher, President Obama also gave us some specific advice. He was asked, should we vote or protest? Bottom line is, I've been hearing a little bit of chatter in the internet about voting versus protest. Politics and, and participation versus uh, civil disobedience and direct action. This is not a either or. This is a both and. To bring about real change, we both have to highlight a problem and make people in power uncomfortable, but we also have to translate that into practical solutions and laws that can be implemented and we can monitor and make sure uh, we're following up on. We need you, Mr. President, and we need more of this. Americans of all political and racial backgrounds need you. America needs you. Please stay out in front and visible and as much as possible. Because the fires are burning, the heat is rising, and the storm is swelling. And especially when the big storms hit, we need leaders to guide us through them. And America needs you now more than ever. We may all now have different socially distanced boats, but in the end, we're all riding into the same intimidating firestorm. Riders on the storm. Riders on the storm. And nowhere are those fires hotter right now than inside the Department of Defense. Formerly known as the Department of War, the Pentagon's been jerked around, exhausted, manipulated, and politicized by President Mayhem. And now, the military and every leader, from the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs to a newly enlisted private, face massively tough questions, and maybe the toughest mission yet. Being deployed stateside against our own people. It's a new kind of war. A war for the soul of our military and the soul of America. And the war is a hot one. Our country is on fire and Esper's world is on fire. And a bad time just got worse. And so, uh, at my urging, I agree, we need to dominate the battle space. Dominate the battle space. Secretary of Defense Esper, as I call SecDef, D-E-A-F, because he's tone-deaf consistently, continues to earn that title on a regular basis. America is not a battle space. Washington, D.C., Seattle, Houston, Nashville, they're not battle spaces. They're our home. 23 states and Washington, D.C. have activated over 17,000 troops in response to civil unrest across the country. Guard members are deploying to assist law enforcement, fire departments, and transportation needs. And they can help if used appropriately and used responsibly. And that should not include federal troops. That should not include the 82nd Airborne. After being shoved into endless shitty situations since 9-11, now National Guard soldiers in states nationwide are being thrust into this madness. It sucks for them, but it's also a chance for them to shine and maybe set an example for police departments across America. Go Guard. 
American presidents have put our troops in some unbelievably hard positions over the last few hundred years. But what President Mayhem is contemplating doing now may be worse than any of them. Just as an example, Trump walking outside the White House in the middle of the chaos, exposing himself in the middle of all it, is just placing a ridiculous burden on our Secret Service, our police, and our troops in the area. It's beyond irresponsible. For him to just go for a walk in the middle of a riot, it's beyond irresponsible. And here's the rub. General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and Secretary of Defense Esper actually walked with the president on his photo op stunt as lawful protesters and journalists were tear-gassed out of the way. General Milley was wearing a battlefield uniform like he'd wear in Iraq or Afghanistan. Usually at the White House, the chairman wears a dress uniform, but not this time. Simultaneously, Esper was addressing the unrest and the military response in a memo where he asked the troops to remain apolitical while he goes on a walk to a church with Trump to hold up a Bible. He tried to backtrack. He said, I didn't know where I was going, he told NBC, making every second lieutenant in the military laugh. The Secretary of Defense says he thought he was accompanying Trump to Lafayette Square to observe a vandalized bathroom. A vandalized bathroom. That's where he thought he was going. He may not have known where he was going, but he knew he was following. And what's followed him is potentially his collapse. I do not support invoking the Insurrection Act. The option to use active duty forces in a law enforcement role should only be used as a matter of last resort and only in the most urgent and dire of situations. We are not in one of those situations now. That's him seeming to oppose the president. But most of all, he's flailing. Trump will rage, and history will judge Esper poorly. From the Pentagon money diverted to Trump's wall, to abandoning the Kurds, to allowing the military to be politicized like we've never seen, it's our troops who will ultimately pay the price for Esper's weakness, per usual. It's what always happens in America, and in most countries. And if you're just now joining us here in the military and national security space, you should note that Esper is the same guy who worked as a lobbyist for Raytheon, the military contractor, and refused to recuse himself from Raytheon matters as Secretary of Defense. He never should have been confirmed. And every senator who voted to confirm him is responsible for this. And it should make us all angry Americans. The title of this podcast has never been more appropriate. But there are voices pushing back, important voices pushing back. Admiral Mike Mullen is one of the most thoughtful, experienced, dynamic leaders of our time. Read every word of what he writes always, and especially now, and listen to anything he says. His is a rare voice that can help lead us forward. And Mullen wrote, Whatever Trump's goal in conducting his visit, he laid bare his disdain for the rights of peaceful protest in this country, gave succor to the leaders of other countries who take comfort in our domestic strife, and risked further politicizing the men and women of our armed forces. That's from Admiral Mike Mullen. And another voice spoke out. James Miller, the member of a Pentagon panel, resigned over Esper's role in the photo op. And he wrote, I hope this letter of resignation will encourage you to again contemplate the obligations you undertook in your oath of office. Miller served as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy from 2012 to 2014. And he provided the Washington Post with a copy of his resignation letter, which he submitted to Secretary of Defense Esper on Tuesday. This is what patriotism looks like. And if you've been paying attention, you're not surprised by Esper's recent move. This is not out of character. He's been consistent since he was nominated. He's a failure who consistently chased Trump's political whims and stood with him instead of our troops. 
And Esper's decision to finally state publicly that he does not support invoking the Insurrection Act did not go over well at the White House, which is the least surprising news of the week. So is Esper about to be shulkened by President Mayhem? It's feeling pretty familiar right now. Two years ago, VA Secretary David Shulkin says the White House claims that he resigned are wrong. He says they fired him. They said he resigned. And this was the back and forth. But from the moment he spoke up against Trump, he was a dead man walking. And Esper might be the same. But let's go back to that nomination vote. Only eight senators voted against the nomination of Esper for Secretary of Defense. All except for that eight are responsible now for his weak leadership and his repeated failures. His failure to lead was predictable and preventable. And the only eight senators who voted no, Cory Booker from New Jersey, Kirsten Gillibrand from New York, Kamala Harris from California, Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota, Ed Markey from Massachusetts, Merkley from Oregon, Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, and Wyden from Oregon. All Democrats were the only eight that voted no. And to add even more fuel to this political fire, officials told the AP that active duty troops brought into the D.C. area to respond to the protests were returning to their home bases, only to be turned back around and told they were going back in. Grand opening, grand closing. Just the latest example of how our troops are getting jerked around by President Mayhem. They're nothing but political props to him. He continues to put unnecessary stress on our military, and our enemies are celebrating. Soldiers were going to leave the D.C. area, then they weren't, then they were, then they weren't. What the fuck? Our men and women in uniform continue to be President Mayhem's great political chew toy, and SecDef Esper continues to enable it. Imagine being the parent of one of those soldiers or the child of one of those soldiers. Congress must step in and stop this. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Oh, and holy shit, by the way, breaking news. General Jim Mattis finally spoke out. About damn time. Better late than never, I guess. But it's very, 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 very late. Mattis wrote some powerful stuff. He said, Donald Trump is the first president in my lifetime who does not try to unite the American people, does not even pretend to try. Instead, he tries to divide us. We are witnessing the consequences of three years of this deliberate effort and now face the consequences of his silence for so long and must chart a way forward grounded in integrity. That's integrity that's been lacking in the Department of Defense's sister agency. After months of turning up the heat on the VA, the truth is finally being heard, and the heat around Secretary Wilkie especially continues to rise. He's like a much less popular and successful version of Drew Brees. He continues to say and do shit that makes people understandably furious. The Department of Veterans Affairs is again playing games with the number of veterans dead from coronavirus. The VA website was actually down for maintenance for five days. In the middle of a pandemic, the VA did not release any information for five days. So Secretary Wilkie and the VA headquarters continue to spin, stumble, and lie, and defend Nazi swastikas on government property. But while most of America was sleeping, the Department of Defense sneakily delayed releasing the number of veterans dead by another day. And they originally said reporting would resume on June 1st. Then they said June 2nd, after failing to release numbers since the previous Thursday. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. And that data was finally released 
And after not releasing it for five days, they released their latest iteration of poorly presented incomplete data. Looks like they've completely stopped reporting on how many they've tested, which at last release was pathetic at under 200,000 tests total. That's only 200,000 for a system of 9 million people. Total cases were just over 14,000. Active cases were 1,400, which was up 7%. Total deaths was 1,254, up 5% from that Thursday when they didn't release anything. Employee cases are at 1,500, and employee deaths are at 32. That's what they claim anyway, but they don't know because they don't test enough. They've tested less than 200,000 people. Under questioning from ranking member Senator John Tester from Montana, BHA head Richard Stone acknowledged, quote, we're not there yet on on-demand testing for coronavirus for employees. VA promised it was close, but Stone says swabs and other testing materials are lacking. They don't have enough swabs. They can't even test their own employees. And that was after the week prior when the department said they had adequate testing and then employees could get testing. So even though they can't test, and even though they can't release numbers, and even though they can't get their website updated, they continue to push their coronavirus snake oil, hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine, the drug promoted by Trump and Wilkie that we've covered on this show for the last few months, did not stop healthy people from getting COVID-19 in another new trial. The study results published in New England Journal of Medicine are the latest development in the highly charged medical and political issue. The argument is about the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine in combating COVID-19, the disease caused by coronavirus. Trump keeps touting the drug and recently said he took it for several days. But the study, by researchers at the University of Minnesota, was a randomized placebo-controlled trial and double-blind. So the study is considered the gold standard for clinical trials. So the latest test says there's no efficacy from hydroxychloroquine. But remember, this was Wilkie in April on MSNBC with Stephanie Rule pushing it. I have to also say that the drug, we know the drug has been working on middle-aged and younger veterans. And the governor of New York was just in the Oval Office yesterday asking for more of the drug to be delivered to the city of New York, Uh, working in, in stopping the progression of the disease. So in the test, 800 adults from the U.S. and Canada were exposed to someone with COVID-19 because of their jobs as healthcare workers or first responders or because they live with someone with the disease. The study was randomized, placebo-controlled, and double-blinding, meaning neither the participants nor the researchers knew what participants received. And the bottom line is the findings reinforced the previous studies showing the drug does not provide benefit against COVID-19. There's no benefit despite what Trump says, despite what Wilkie says. And Janine Morazzo, an infectious disease expert at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, said the results, quote, should provide a very big nail in the coffin for the idea that hydroxychloroquine can prevent COVID-19. So it doesn't work, and they lied about it. And Wilkie continues to take losses, big ones. The hashtag where is Wilkie is finally in the spotlight. And in a congressional hearing last week, he was pressed by Florida Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz and others. And per White House SOP, instead of defending his position, he attacked the press. Wasserman Schultz asked him why the VA wasn't being more transparent about the pandemic other than TV appearances on some major networks, which only began recently. 
Wilkie fired back and said they're not holding press conferences like the DOD does because VA does not have a press corps. Well, the VA has consistently ignored interview requests from a number of reporters, including Abby Bennett from Connecting Vets. And the VA does have a press corps, a number of great reporters that cover the VA every single day. They just don't have a home within the building like defense reporters do at the Pentagon. Patricia Keem, Leo Shane, Nikki Wentling, Ben Kessling, and plenty of others all cover the VA every single day. And the only thing stopping Wilkie from having a press corps is Wilkie opening the door and letting in the press corps. And here's another big takeaway from the hearing. Wilkie said he thinks that the VA accounts for deaths in state-run veterans' homes and its COVID-19 numbers. Deaths in places like Holyoke, the soldier's home that's had almost 100 veterans die. But a Department of Veterans Affairs spokesperson told Patricia Keim at Military.com a few weeks ago that VA isn't tracking those numbers. VA isn't tracking those numbers. Let that sink in. So VA is taking fire on their data, and they're taking fire on their testing of hydroxychloroquine. And all the while, VA's continued support of Trump's hydroxychloroquine infatuation is killing what the Nazis couldn't, the greatest generation. And speaking of Nazis, I told you in the last episode that in addition to failing to protect veterans from the pandemic, as race relations in America reach a fever pitch, our racist president continues to divide America and be the darling of white nationalists everywhere. And VA Secretary Wilkie thought this would be a good time for the VA to dig in and defend the display of Nazi swastikas on federal property. We covered it at length in the last episode if you haven't heard it. At issue are three grave sites at two VA cemeteries, Fort Sam Houston National Cemetery in Texas and Fort Douglas Post Cemetery in Utah. Both were used to intern dozens of unclaimed remains of enemy troops following World War II. But after the heat was turned up thanks to this show and others, Secretary Wilkie did exactly what you'd expect a Trump cabinet member to do. He doubled down. And here he is testifying before Congress in the middle of the pandemic and in the middle of riots happening around the country. He's testifying before Congress and challenged by Florida Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Erasing these headstones moves them, removes them from memory. And as we continue to study the Holocaust, the last thing any Holocaust scholar wants to do is erase that memory. I think we can find a way to put this in historical context. That is my view. Yep. A member of Congress had to explain to a Trump cabinet secretary why he needed to remove Nazi swastikas from government property. And when we talk about systemic racism and we talk about systemic hatred, there's a very important history and context around this position taken by Secretary Wilkie. This is not out of character for him. Check this out. It's been entirely predictable for him to take a position like this. And it's a concern that I and others raised when he was first nominated. Especially after there was a headline that read, VA Secretary Robert Wilkie didn't disclose pro-Confederate associations on confirmation paperwork. The Washington Post had the story. Until 2005, Wilkie was a fixture at the annual memorial ceremonies in Washington held by descendants of Confederate veterans around the birthday of Jefferson Davis. He was also a member of the Sons of the Confederate Veterans. In a statement given to the Washington Post at the time, Wilkie said the commemorations of the Confederacy he once attended were now part of the politics that divide us, meaning he didn't apologize. He didn't change his position. He was also once a loyal soldier for racist North Carolina Senator Jesse Helms. In 1993, 
Wilkie battled the only black senator, Carol Mosley Braun, on another issue of equality and said, what we're seeing is an attempt in the name of political correctness to erase entire blocks of our history. These 1995 remarks underscore Wilkie's apparent belief in a theory that slavery was not a central cause of the Civil War, and he sees the succession of the southern states of the Union as a sympathetic, heroic struggle for states' rights. So there's a well-documented, ugly history for Wilkie on issues of race and civilism. He's been a loyal soldier for divisive and racist leaders before, and now he serves a racist president as African-American and Hispanic veterans face higher risks from coronavirus. Earlier this week, the VA warned that Black and Hispanic veterans could be at higher risk from COVID-19, but the VA didn't provide any data despite multiple requests. And then this week, Wilkie would not commit to removing headstones containing swastikas and messages honoring Hitler. He said he wants to put anti-Semitic and racist imagery in the, quote, proper historical context. He's the last guy in the cabinet in a position to do that. And time and time again in this short tenure, Secretary Wilkie has opposed common sense efforts to modernize the VA and make it more inclusive to women and other key elements of an increasingly diverse veterans community. He opposed the change of the VA motto to include women. It's an issue we've covered in the past here on the show. And time and time again, Wilkie took the wrong side of a key inclusion issue, and always in defense of Trump. In 2018, he defended senior staffers accused of muting an internal response to white nationalism in the wake of the 2017 Charlottesville, Virginia riots. Our modern military is diverse, and the vets community, VA patients, and staff are increasingly diverse. We need a VA secretary that has our back. And it's clear Secretary Wilkie doesn't. He's not loyal to us. He's loyal to Trump. That should be clear to everyone now. And here's the final note. After being shamed into it, Wilkie has finally agreed to take down the Nazi swastikas displayed on government property. This was actually a fight, but it's a fight we won. Many of you listening raised your voices. Many of you called your member of Congress and sounded off on social media. And now we have a win, a small but an important one. And the VA has now finally gotten the message on swastikas. And as protests and clashes continue nationwide, Summer is almost here. It's back. The season of sunshine. Unfortunately, it may also be the summer of super spreading. Because you may not know it from the newspapers or cable news, but there's still a pandemic hitting our country. And the world. And it's not taking the summer off. There are now 6.5 million confirmed infections worldwide. Over 6 million. That's more than the entire population of Denmark, Congo, Norway, Costa Rica, or El Salvador. Brazil and Mexico both announced a record number of virus deaths in a single day. Make no mistake, the virus is raging in many parts of the world. Pakistan overtook China and now has more recorded cases of COVID-19 than China where the virus originated. Brazil now has nearly as many deaths a day as the U.S., and Egypt is seeing a huge growth in patients. And here in the U.S., thanks to President Mayhem and a wide range of national and local leadership failures, as summer approaches 
and the NBA talks about potentially reopening in July, America remains on top of the worst scoreboard in the world. That fire is still burning, and we're quickly approaching 2 million confirmed cases in the U.S., still more than anywhere else in the world, by a lot. We have three times more cases and three times more deaths than any other country in the world. More than the population of every city in America, except for Houston, Chicago, Los Angeles, and New York. More than the population of half the countries on the planet. And after a rockin' Memorial Day in many parts of the country, most states in America are reopened. Businesses are back open in most states under some restrictions. Fewer customers, requirements to wear masks, and lots of social distancing. But even as governors lift orders, stricter orders will probably remain in place, especially in places like New York, where things regarding the virus are going in the right direction. And New York City is scheduled to start reopening on June 8th, thanks in part to the strong leadership of Governor Cuomo who continues to lead and continues to bring in people from all backgrounds to have smart press conferences and entertaining press conferences. He smartly involves New York celebrities and other folks that just make it interesting and bring inspirational info, including Chris Rock, who did what Chris Rock does. He broke it down. I watch you every single day and you, you bring me calm. You know, you bring me joy. Didn't Aretha, Anita Baker sing that? You bring me joy every single day. Because I don't know what's going on. I thought I lived in the United States. I thought I lived in a country. And now I realize there, we have 50 countries, essentially. <laughs> right now we're in the country of New York. He's right. He is in the country of New York. And so am I. And more than any other time in modern history, thanks to the feckless leadership of President Mayhem, we're broken into 50 pieces. Only eight states have any regional restrictions now. Washington, Oregon, California, Michigan, Illinois, Tennessee, Pennsylvania, and here in New York upstate, there was a predictable and disturbing piece of news. 15 West Point cadets have tested positive for coronavirus. So remember Trump's plan to bring them all back to West Point for graduation? Well, more than 1,100 cadets have returned to campus ahead of the commencement speech later this month. And about 1,100 of them came flying or driving back into New York over the last couple of days. And they were immediately tested for the virus. 1.5% tested positive, which works out to about 17 people. And none of them showed symptoms. And those who tested positive are going through 10 days of isolation in a designated barracks before four more days of slightly less strict quarantine. They have internet access in the room and they can go outside to set areas to read or perform PT. Boy, President Mayhem really loves our troops. A totally unnecessary risk for America's future Army officers for what will surely be another photo op. What a fun time, because who doesn't want to be in the barracks in June in the middle of a pandemic? And speaking of fun times, as predicted, at least one partygoer at the Lake of the Ozarks pool party in Missouri has tested positive for COVID-19, potentially exposing hundreds, maybe thousands. Because there were a large number of people potentially exposed to the virus, the Camden County Health Department is publicly releasing where the resident was during the weekend. And this person definitely got around. He or she went to all the finest establishments in the Ozarks. On Saturday, the person went to Blackwater Jack's from 1 to 5 p.m., then went to Shady Gators and Lazy Gators Pool from 5.40 to 9 p.m., and then finished up a big Saturday at Blackwater Jack's again from 9.40 to 10 p.m. 
Then on Sunday, he or she picked up where they left off and went to Buffalo Wild Wings from 1 to 2 and back to Shady Gators from 2.30 to 6.30 or 7 p.m. And then a taxi from Shady Gators to a private residence around 7 p.m. So for about nine hours each day, this person was busy drinking, bobbing in a giant pee pool, eating wings, doing tequila shots with friends, and potentially spreading the virus to everyone. And in Missouri and down south, as predicted, things are heating up. Alabama, South Carolina, and Virginia all saw new cases rise 35%. Many of these states resisted the early lockdown measure, and many are now heating up. Nursing homes and meatpacking plants continue to be hot zones, and prisons. The virus loves prisons. As testing expands, so do the number of positive cases in prisons. According to the Marshall Project, at Marion Correctional Institute in Ohio, nearly 80% of the prisoners have tested positive for the disease. In Santa Barbara, California, at a federal prison, it's 74%. At one dorm in Louisiana, 192 out of 195 women tested positive. And beyond prisons, there's a new factor in the pandemic. The protests. All those protests concentrated in urban areas, screaming and yelling next to each other for hours on end. Being outside may mitigate some of the risks, and many folks were wearing masks, but many did not. And in many places, protesters were packed next to each other for hours. So the mayor of D.C., the mayor of Atlanta, and many other leaders are expressing concern that the months of social distancing have been undone just in the last week. Now, the ultimate irony here could be that the protests against systemic racism could result in new outbreaks that disproportionately impact people who are impacted by systemic racism. Areas like the Bronx, New York, that saw many of the most intense protests also saw some of the most intense outbreaks. And it even turns out that George Floyd himself tested positive for the virus. An autopsy report was released this week that says he tested positive for the virus. So George Floyd himself had the virus. And now, thousands protesting in his name may end up having the virus too. So if you're out at the protests, use your brain, because you can't protest if you're dead. And a protest that kills everyone's grandma is doing the work of systemic racism all on its own. So if you protest, wear a mask. And if you can, as hard as it is... Because the virus doesn't care. It's mean, it's cruel, and it might not stop the protests, but it might slow them down. And it most certainly will slow down the older protesters and the grandparents and other high-risk people around the younger ones. So it's still spreading in new places, in new ways, and it's not gone. Peaks in states are happening, and they will likely continue to happen for weeks to come. Because as the weather heats up, the fire still burns. And as we covered in episode 56 a few weeks back with D.A., the great David Aldridge from The Athletic, the NBA may be back, too. So good news, sports fans. The National Basketball Association is considering a World Cup-style playoff format and a plan to return to play at the end of July. The league wants to send 22 teams to Orlando, the top 13 from the Western Conference and the top nine from the Eastern Conference, for an eight-game regular season starting on July 31st, followed by a postseason. 
The playoffs will have the traditional format, four rounds, top eight teams from each conference, except a play-in tournament will be held between the ninth and eighth place teams. And if all goes well, including a Board of Governors call coming up soon, the last possible date of a finals game seven is October 12th. And if it happens, the following teams are assured a spot in the postseason based on an eight-game regular season. In the East, it's the Bucks, Raptors, Celtics, Heat, Pacers, and Sixers. In the West, Lakers, Clippers, Nuggets, Jazz, Thunder, and Rockets. We're still talking about two months from now, and a lot can happen before then. And none of it's going to be good for my Knicks. Because there is an enemy that will try its hardest to ensure there's no basketball, no baseball, no concerts, no movies. It can travel farther than a wayward spark from your campfire. It can get inside your tent and annoy you more than a swarm of mosquitoes. It's the no of our summer. The stupid is heating up. It continues to spread deep into the brains of governors especially. And allow me to introduce you to this week's runner-up. West Virginia governor and statewide embarrassment, Jim Justice. He wanted to call me and let me know, you know, that it looks like they're going to go another way. I knew it was a giant long shot and everything, but I wanted West Virginia at least to be on the radar. And so, so you know, that that's the thing. We, we, uh, we talk frequently, but we just don't talk to chatter. You know, uh, you know I, I wanted him to always know just how welcome he is in West Virginia. And any president, you know, we should absolutely welcome all, but, as, you know, maybe not Barack Obama, <laughs> but nevertheless, we'll welcome any president, you know. Amazingly, he's a billionaire, and apparently he's the wealthiest person in West Virginia, and maybe the stupidest. It's a wonderfully racially charged thing to say as protests rip across America. Well done, Governor Justice. You're on notice. But this week, competition was intense. After the Ozark pool parties and packed-in protests and crazy-ass Trump doing crazy-ass things, there was a lot of competition. And as New York City continues to implode, so does Mayor Bill de Blasio. He actually defended the NYPD after a police van ran into a bunch of protesters, blaming the protesters. He later walked that back. His daughter was among the protesters arrested, which I have no problem with, except that I wish she was protesting her father as mayor. 236 current and former staffers of de Blasio also signed an open letter calling on him to live up to the promises of reform that originally drew them to work for him. And finally, finally, people are stepping up to stop him. City Councilman Eric Ulrich from Queens is a moderate Republican and maybe the only Republican in the entire New York City Council. I've known him for a long time. He said on the Veterans Affairs Committee, he's a good leader and a good man. And he tweeted, I just woke up and New York City is still smoldering from civil unrest. New York City mayor has lost control of the situation. Even some of his closest allies have abandoned ship. It's time for Governor Cuomo to step in and remove him from office. I will be calling for a vote of no confidence. So that's coming. And underscoring de Blasio's idiocy, his incompetency, after a night of police clashing with peaceful protesters, after nights of looting, and after a night of an NYPD van smashing into a bunch of protesters, he added this gem at the end of a press conference. Final point I'd make, the, I, I understand, I, I don't mean to make light of this, but I'm reminded of the song Imagine by John Lennon. 
We played it at my inauguration. I, I think everyone who hears that song in its fullness thinks about what about a world where people got along differently? What about a world where we didn't live with a lot of the restrictions that we live with now? What about a world where you weren't mayor of the largest city in America? That's the only thing New Yorkers and Americans of all political backgrounds want to imagine. So our big winner from a past episode, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio is working hard to repeat the title, which, as the Tony Romo of predicting assholes in politics, I told you to expect. And speaking of Tony Romo, a surprise finalist emerged this week, quarterback Drew Brees. Well, I, I, will, I will never agree with anybody um, disrespecting the flag of the United States of America or our country. He said, I'll never agree with anybody disrespecting the flag of the United States of America or our country. True Breeze got this one wrong. My grandfather served in World War II, too, and I served in Iraq. And my thoughts on players kneeling are pretty well documented. And I respect their right to protest. And I don't think that they're necessarily disrespecting their flag because they take a knee. Some of them believe they're honoring the flag by taking the knee. So I'll, I hope he'll hear this and consider the issue from a different viewpoint. But Drew Brees came up short, too. There's a new winner. Following the legendary jerks of all political parties like de Blasio, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem, Acting Secretary of the Navy Thomas Modley, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Senator Rand Paul, Vice President Mike Pence, the mobs of morons taking guns to the Michigan Capitol, the protests to stay-at-home orders, and most recently, the guy pushing hydroxychloroquine on dying veterans on Memorial Day, VA Secretary Robert Wilkie. But none were more terrible, more troubling, or more deserving than a very special group of people. Seriously. A group of people that makes me so angry and makes others so angry that they almost transcend this segment. That's the sound of looting. Not protesting. Not demonstrating. This is different. These are looters. Ripping through stores in New York City. Just a few blocks from my home. But it wasn't just in New York. It was in places across America. This is Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottom powerfully responding. So what I see happening on the streets of Atlanta is not Atlanta. This is not a protest. This is not in the spirit of Martin Luther King Jr. This is chaos. A protest has purpose. When Dr. King was assassinated, we didn't do this to our city. So if you love this city, this city that has had a legacy of black mayors and black police chiefs and people who care about this city, where more than 50% of the business owners in Metro Atlanta are minority business owners. If you care about this city, then go home. And pray that somebody like Reverend Beasley will come and talk to you and give you some instructions on what a protest should look like and how you effectuate change in America. This police chief made a video on yesterday, pull it up on YouTube, where she said she was appalled to watch the murder of George Floyd. This woman did that. You're not honoring the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement. You're not protesting anything running out with brown liquor in your hands, breaking windows in this city. 
T.I. and Killer Mike own half the West Side. So when you burn down this city, you're burning down our community. If you want change in America, go and register to vote. Show up at the polls on June 9th. Do it in November. That is the change we need in this country. You are disgracing our city. You are disgracing the life of George Floyd and every other person who has been killed in this country. That is what leadership sounds like. And former Attorney General Eric Holder had something to say, too. He said protest makes change possible. But these idiots on the streets destroying things have no intention of protesting inequality. They're co-opting the righteous anger of those who truly suffer. And anger can and must be channeled into efforts to make positive change a reality. Well, A.G. Holder, I agree, and I've got a podcast you might like. But Eric Holder was right. And if you were looting in Atlanta, in New York, or anywhere else, you're doing the work of the racists for them. You're doing the work of our enemies for them. You're selfish. You're cowards. You're criminals. And obviously, maybe more even than the long line of politicians that have come before you, you are most deserving of this song, this title, and most of all, handcuffs. I drive really slow in the ultra fast lane while people behind me are going insane. I'm an And unless we can get President Mayhem in handcuffs too, we'll all need to stay focused on November, which unlike any new movies in America, is coming soon. The campaign's starting to unfold in new and weird ways. And as Trump continues to flood the zone, I think Biden needs to offer an alternative. He should deliver live remarks every day until further notice with Barack Obama and other respected key leaders that can add calm and develop and support a national strategic plan. We need clear goals, a real strategy, and unity from our nation's leaders not named Trump. Yes, it's time for Biden to truly step up and fill the void and not do it alone, but with others that can add wisdom, experience, integrity, energy, others from different backgrounds. George W. Bush is a must. All living presidents are a must. So is General Martin Dempsey and Admiral Mike Mullen and maybe Jim Mattis and my friend Wes Moore and many other key former military and police voices especially. And invite Chris Rock, too. It's about finding a path forward. It's also about protecting America. As Trump tears our wounded country apart, true patriots must rise to the moment and show real American strength in contrast to Trump. Our enemies are watching, and they need to see America still has strong leaders. George W. Bush would show how this crosses party lines. And Obama flooding the zone with calm and sanity would be refreshing, helpful to America, and strong political strategy. It'll also be good TV and good ratings. I suggested a few days ago that he and Biden should do it daily. But Obama came out and did a national speech, and I think he should do it daily with Biden. We got to turn Biden into Ellen. Every day he should have a different group of friends coming on through. And meanwhile, the Republicans have decided they will move Trump's convention out of Charlotte, North Carolina. After a stalemate with Democrats in North Carolina, Republicans said the president won't accept the party's nomination at its convention in Charlotte as planned, but would do so in another city. 
West Virginia and others are hoping they get the pick. By the time this is over, the only place left for him to get the nomination might be Mar-a-Lago or wherever the heck UFC's having their fights. Because summer's here and the heat is on. And especially when the fires are burning, you got to look for the helpers. That's the theme of this show, and especially right now. And this is the greatest time we've ever seen for helpers, the greatest need we've ever had for helpers and for heroes. Not all cops are bad. In fact, many are not. And just like I want to highlight the good protesters, I want to highlight the good cops. And here's an example of an NYPD crew on a subway. Some NYPD transit cops raced into action to save a man suffering from a seizure who fell onto the subway tracks as it was approaching a lower Manhattan station. The cops jumped onto the track as a number four train was coming barreling down the Bowling Green station. They rendered care and flagged down a train coming into the station to stop as city firefighters and the EMTs arrived. They took the victim to Bellevue Hospital for care. And it's not just real cops stepping up. It's also Hollywood cops, including... Denzel Washington. Denzel Washington did a good deed for somebody in need. He helped a homeless guy who was in distress. He was driving through West Hollywood when he saw a guy in the street in peril with oncoming traffic. So Denzel got out of his car with a mask on, talked to the man, and brought him to the safety of the sidewalk. Denzel was wearing a protective mask, but the guy he was helping wasn't. Despite the risk, he needed help, and Denzel was the man for the job. Police got there and talked to the man as Denzel comforted him. TMZ had the story, and it seemed like he didn't even know who Denzel was. But we know who he was. He was a helper. And the helpers are out there. This was posted by Craig Spencer, a doctor who's been on the front lines of helping folks with the coronavirus. He tweeted that this is a counterpoint for all the videos that'll be replayed tonight of a city in ruins. This is my walk home from work right now. This is New York City still cheering for essential workers at 7 p.m., despite our heavy hearts as our friends and loved ones peacefully protest downtown. And other folks are stepping up, too. Boxer Floyd Mayweather has agreed to pay for George Floyd's funeral. So Money Mayweather is going to put his money to a good cause and help the Floyd family bury George Floyd in what will be a moving and historic ceremony. But Floyd Mayweather is a helper. And there are helpers in Austin also. Check this out. Left me with a tent, a new mattress, an air mattress. They brought me food. They brought me clothes, money. You can testify to that. Thank you, Austin. I love you, Austin. You're the best. And I got no, no hard feelings at all. It's a bad place at a bad time. This is a homeless guy who had all his possessions burned by looters. People came in who didn't even know him and bought him a whole new crop of stuff. And he was grateful, and he had a positive attitude. They're helpers, and now he's a helper. And finally, as the riots in Minneapolis continue, there's a Center for Low-Income Housing that put out a call asking for food donations. And this is how people responded. To whoever wants it, so tell everybody, anybody who needs food, come down here and take as much as they can use. Yay. We're now a distribution site. We'd like people to take this in the next three hours. There was so much food that it became a distribution center for others and anyone who needed it. It was the kind of help we all need, especially now. The helpers are out there. When things look tough, look for the helpers. 
The helpers will lift us up. The helpers will show us the way. The helpers will fix our wounds. And the helpers will tell our stories. Helpers like Brooke Baldwin. Brooke Baldwin's TV career started with local leadership roles in Charlottesville, Virginia, Huntington and Charleston, West Virginia, and in Washington, D.C. She worked her way up and eventually landed on the biggest stage in the industry at CNN in New York City. Her work's taken her to some of the biggest events of the last two decades, from the Newtown Massacre and the Boston Marathon bombing to the Arab Spring and multiple American protests. Brooke has been on the ground and at the anchor desk, bringing breaking news to America. Her dedication doesn't stop when the satellite trucks pull out of town. After a series of mass shootings, Brooke hosted a moving 2015 town hall, which made her a finalist for the Peabody Award, broadcast journalism's highest honor. She's always giving back, especially to causes that support women. And she's uniquely down to earth and fun. She's also a massive University of North Carolina sports fan. And every New Year's Eve, Brooke hosts a late night party for millions worldwide as the co-host of CNN's New Year's Eve coverage live from New Orleans with Don Lemon. And that's when you get a chance to see how down to earth and real Brooke is. Over a dozen years on CNN, Brooke spent time embedded in the Navy and the Persian Gulf. She reported from Africa and she played major roles in the network's coverage of the last two presidential elections. And now she's on the front lines of covering the tumultuous time that is 2020. COVID-19, the protests erupting around the nation and whatever mayhem President Trump unleashes on the public between 2 and 4 p.m. daily. In addition to her work on Newsroom, she's also the creator and host of American Woman, a CNN digital series that focuses on women who blaze trails, are shattering glass ceilings, and looking to share their stories to inspire others like them. Angry Americans is continuing our groundbreaking focus on the frontline fighters of the war against COVID-19, and now the civil unrest that's erupted nationwide since the killing of George Floyd, with another important, inspiring, and iconic guest that's on the front lines daily. A guest that shaped America's past, is shaping our present, and will surely shape our future. It's a candid, fascinating, and real conversation with Brooke that'll leave you enlightened and inspired. She's from the South. She can handle the heat. She knows how to face the flames, to face the virus, and she'll tell us all why it's so important to breathe. The anger is off the charts. And so is the need for calm, the need for light, the need to contrast all the heat. And most of all, it's a time to breathe. Catch your breath, people. Listen to Killer Mike. Plot, plan, strategize. And open our hearts and commit to the future. As we bring you the four eyes like we always do. It's a flame of integrity. It's a headlamp of information. It's a lighter in the darkness of inspiration and a spotlight of impact. Welcome to an America engulfed in pain. Welcome to an America flooded with chaos. Welcome to an America at a crossroads. And welcome to an America fighting to breathe. Welcome to Angry Americans, episode 62. Take a deep breath. We can take the heat. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ladies and gentlemen, angry Americans around the country and around the globe, I am absolutely thrilled and honored and excited to have a very inspiring, uh, important, and iconic guest, a person I have admired and worked with, and most of all, like. Like, there are a lot of people in the media that I've worked with that, frankly, I don't like. Uh, and, and our guest today is someone that I think is, is not just a tremendous journalist, but a tremendous person. And I am very, very happy to have with us today the great and powerful Brooke Baldwin. How are you, my friend? Oh, you like me? You really, really like me? I, I like you, too. I like you too, man. I've liked you for a long time. I've known you for, I don't know how many years it's been, but so cool. So cool. Yeah, yeah it's, it's been like almost right, at least a decade and a half. I think the first time I came on your show and um, I've just, it's been really exciting to see your rise and your journey. Um, Thank you. And, and like the, the no shit, you keep it real. Like, you know, we've, we've, we've had, we've been out at events and had drinks and off camera. You're very yep. kind and generous. And, and I think that comes through in, in all of your work. So especially thank with you. all that's going on in the world, in your world and the world, thank you. A for lot. Me. Yeah. Thank you for making the time to join me on the show. Of course. Of course. So, and I uh, know it's just been awesome having you on and going to, you know, previous IAVA events and having, you know, your, your, you know, men and women in military on the show. So just, yeah, thank you so much. Of course. So first of all, uh, the question I've been asking everybody since the pandemic started um, where are you? And I always ask everyone, how are you? And this is a particularly important question for you. Where are you? How are you? And what has it been like for you and the people close to you during this pandemic? Um, thank you for asking. And it's also just, I think, you know, just given the coverage of everything else in the world in the last week, it's like, what pandemic? But we are in the middle of a pandemic. And hello and welcome to my glamorous CNN office, uh, where yes, I keep my colorful CNN anchor wardrobe behind me. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just finished my show like 25 minutes ago and yes, we are here in the building in New York city. I think a lot of people think we're just like hanging out in our you know homes with the home studio and no, we show up and we're in these, what, what are, you've been in many of them, Paul, like flash studios, which is yeah. sort of like a little bit more than a glorified broom closet and you got one camera and no one else is in there just for sheer safety reasons and you rock and roll for the show and there's literally no one else in this building other than a couple correspondents and you know bosses over in the the, the new york bureau and, and in cnn digital because we're all being so totally safe because of coronavirus which i had um God, what month are we in now what month are we in now paul we just june? we just hit june okay I so we i just hit june yeah. i got sick uh, two months ago right now. So first week of April and yeah, I'm, I can tell you all about it, but, uh, yeah, I'm so much better. I'm totally back to a hundred percent. Thank goodness. I, I want to go deeper into that, um, as, as we expand this conversation, but for folks that don't know, I think it's interesting to hear that behind the scenes, because I remember 
you know, the last kind of week or two weeks of going to CNN, of going to MSNBC and others and debating, like, do I go in? Can I do it from home? And then there was yeah. one point where I did, you know, an interview with Cuomo from my wife's closet. And then after that, everybody's <laughs> like started. an actual closet. Yeah, an actual <laughs> closet, an actual closet, Her shoes behind me and like nice. all kinds of crazy shit. Nice. Um, but now you guys are also in Hudson Yards, which is yes. this monstrosity of a mini city within New York City in the new CNN Time Warner building, which is yeah. big even when it was open and rocking and rolling. So, you know, especially now after this week of, of looting and protests, what's it like in that neighborhood, which was kind of frankly like a bit empty before this started because you had these luxury shops that tourists hadn't found yet, you know, and it was, it was probably yeah. like the new, the, maybe the newest part of New York City. What's it like there in Hudson Yards? Yeah, no, you described it perfectly like this, this city within a city and it's felt sort of no man landy before everyone's been moving in and slowly but surely, you know, we've got all these shops, fancy, fancy pants shops in this building and in restaurants and things. I will say that it's been, I mean, obviously in New York City, it, you, you never think of New York City as a quiet place, but it's been extraordinarily quiet, especially in our little pocket of town. And then, um, yes, with the, the looting, which is a small sliver of this huge story, but I walked into work yesterday and, you know, the security guard, there, you know, the security is around and police is around. And there was um, part of the, right when you walk in the front door of, of CNN or Hudson Yards, the mall area was shattered. So it had been hit. So now there's- They got in, they actually got inside, to, they got inside think, to the mall? I don't, I, don't, I don't think they got inside, but they wow. shattered one of the glass doors. So they've now- put some plywood up around the front and out to get in the building. It's even more secure and you go in a back way, which I'm not going to give you the secret password, but you know, <laughs> you, you can, get, you can, you can obviously get in the building, but they're just being extra cautious and, you know, fingers crossed that that all that piece of all of this, that element is over. Mm. So a, a question I ask of everyone, and I think is especially interesting um, given your, 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 your other role as a co-host on, on the New Year's Eve coverage from CNN, <laughs> which I always love and I think really shows people like a real side of you yes. and Don, who's, who's known to like a drink or two as well. We um, let our hair down. Yeah, girl. but, but I, I ask all our guests, what is your cocktail or adult beverage of choice? Mm, mm, you know, I was, I was thinking, I was marinating on this. I mean, I could could give you several. I think my, my go-to is just some good old fashioned bubbly, but if I had to pick a, a cocktail lately, I've been, you know how you go through phases. I I'm just a straight up vodka, um, martini up, uh, dry with a twist. Serve it to me in a cool martini glass. I'm a happy gal. <laughs> I was excited. I was excited about having this part of the conversation with, and I actually, in anticipation of that, I got a glass of champagne. Oh. I'm at an undisclosed location, so it's not it's not my house exactly. Um, oh. But I didn't have a champagne glass. I have a lot of old stuff here, as anyone who's been following the show knows. So the best I could do was uh, some prosecco that mm. we had. And mm. you know, you're just you're, gonna drink in front of me like that? That's well, how, that's I'm, gonna, I'm gonna toast to you because I think it's it's a very trying time in America. It's it's yeah. obviously an emotional heart-wrenching time in America, but part of this show is about turning the anger into positive outcomes and Love to that. trying to find ways to celebrate the, the things that are worth celebrating. You yes. know, yesterday morning, a little nest outside of our kitchen window had three robin's eggs in them, and now it's there. But I also, as a friend, as a fan, you are healthy, 
And I think mm. that's worth toasting to hold and on, hold celebrating. On. Let me get my let me get my my other kind of sparkly. There you go. <laughs> so so I appreciate you, and I'm glad you're healthy. Thank you. And and to see you um, approach that really difficult situation with the same candor and humility and openness you always do is was really, really inspiring, I think, and, and gave people um, inspiration and peace and, and just kind of broke it down in a way that was really, really, I think, important. Um, but going in the way, I want to stay in the way, way back machine because okay. you've, you've had a great journey that's taken you throughout the South, mostly, right? Yeah. And you're a big North Carolina fan, I know. Um, and and, and you've, you've covered the South, you understand the South, you're from the South. But when yeah. you were growing up, Brooke Baldwin, what was your first car? Oh, man, my first car. Well, <laughs> okay, so I learned how to drive on my mom's boat of a Buick station wagon. So picture, you know, 15-year-old going on 16, Brooke, having to pass the test. I mean, like, you know, you know what I'm talking about where you get to sit, you know, backwards in the back seat and sort of make... Uh, gestures uh, at cars behind you when your, your parents were screaming at you in the front. Uh, yeah. That was technically my first car, and that is how I learned how to parallel park. And then soon after, after having a job, I think I made a couple thousand dollars, which bought me sort of a mid '80s BMW, like two two door, uh, baby blue uh, three series BMW, which um, looked really cool. But then uh, as I was rounding 285 for all the Atlantans listening, it just totally conked out on me. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Man, wanna, you're bringing me back. I want to stay on the, I want to stay on the Buick. Do you know what <laughs> year it was and what color it was? Let's see. We would have gotten it when I was in middle school. So maybe 1990. And it was that navy blue stripe wrapped around it and the rest was just wood so wood and the navy oh, stripe yeah. and i remember begging like i remember when you know big buick station wagons were the jam and i thought i was so cool like rocking out you know pumping up the pearl jam broke at 16 driving around atlanta i just thought i was the coolest thing until obviously some of my other friends uh, you know did did me one better with whatever they were driving but I mean, you think about all the people you could pile into a Buick station wagon and rock out and go a little too fast. Yep. Sorry, mom. It was <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I, I love it. I did it. I knew it was going to be a great answer, but the idea of the wood with the with the with the kind of I guess it's not a racing stripe, but it's like a wagon stripe. We had yes. a Chevy, we had a Chevy station wagon for most of my life growing up, like before there were SUVs. And we had the way, way back seat, right? And my father used to have a, a, a trailer hitch so that we could tow things. And uh, at that point, things. that was like, there were no SUVs. There were no big trucks. Later, we got a Blazer and things like that. But the, the station wagon had the big V8, too. And we could pack all the kids and all the shit in it. And you could put stuff on top. And the station wagon was the jam. You're right. It was the jam in the 90s. Like, kids these, kids these days, what they don't know about riding backwards in a car man everybody piling in a minivan or a fancy suburban yes. they don't know what they're missing yes before there were you know limos and before uber drivers were putting up um you know panels to protect you from the virus my brother and i were in the back seat doing shady shit with like a blanket up. and shit. my father you know, long drives to pennsylvania and maine and yeah you know, 
truck father, drivers. What the hell are you guys doing back there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, yes. well, all right. I, see yes. this, I knew this was going to be so fun to talk to you. Yes. Um, but I want to bring it back to the, you know, this, the conversation we've been having on this show is with leaders who have been on the front lines of the pandemic. And yeah. now it's expanded almost into like a, a two front, I don't want to use the term battle space like Esper did, but a two front landscape where you've now got um, the protests and the riots and the demonstrations overlaid on top of um, the pandemic. But, but I want to really stay on the pandemic because I feel like for at least for the last week, people kind of forgot there is one. Totally, right? totally. But you are in a really unique position and it's why I was so looking forward to talking to you because you were... Um, you were experiencing the pandemic in a very personal way while you were covering it, while you were kind of shaping it, which I've tried to explain to others. Like I'm not just living in the pandemic. I'm also covering it and then I'm trying to influence it. But you took it one step further where you had it, right? You were one of the first public people, you know, in the media who got the virus. So you've talked about it, you've written about it, but, but for folks that, um, that maybe haven't had a chance to hear you talk about it, or now that you've had space to think about it, what do you mm. want people to know about that experience, Brooke? And mm. what are your takeaways at this time? Man, um, thank you for asking me about that. And yeah, it was a couple of days after your your boy Cuomo got sick. I, uh, I mean, it's a funny thing when when you're a journalist, and I knew I'd be covering, you know, one of the, the stories of my lifetime. This pandemic is something I had certainly uh, never never experienced, and it was so just like on the ready every day, interviewing nurses, doctors, you know, folks who've lost loved ones. And maybe it's being a little bit naive. I just wasn't thinking that, oh man, I'm going to get socked with this nasty uh, virus, which is exactly what happened. And I remember feeling like shit and literally sitting in this office and, um, and it all started coming on, but you know how we do the thing where you just, you're like, if you don't acknowledge it, it's like, Back in the day when you showed up at work, I know I shouldn't say this, but when you're like super hungover in your young 20s, and you're like, all right, if I just don't tell everyone I'm hungover, then I'm right. cool. Like, I'm going to get through this work day. Right. It's been years. Um, and so it's like, I was so, I was feeling so sick, but if I didn't acknowledge it, I could get through the show and I'd be fine. It, it would go away. But it didn't. And long story short, I got tested. Um, I was fortunate to get a test and it came back positive. They did the whole like thing way up your nose. And I think... Yes, it was awful. And, you know, I, I, yes, I was one of the lucky ones. Like I was nothing like, nothing like in the hospital on a ventilator, those extreme, you know, circumstances and, and, you know, going to the hospital, seeing not to take a total, you know, grim turn, but it's also a very real part of it is seeing the refrigerated trucks outside of the hospital and knowing exactly what was inside. And so for me, um, it was horrible fever aches, um, uh, that kind of thing, uh, exhaustion. I slept like a teenage boy, you know, like would wake up at noon, wake up to have some yogurt, go back to sleep for a couple of hours kind of thing. And, um, my husband and I tried to social distance for two days that didn't last because I was just really upset. And, and I, I think Cuomo referred to it as the beast. It is like at night, this like night beast would come on and, and I, I would just weep, you know, I would weep because I just never would know how bad it would feel any given night. And it was a roller coaster, kind of like, you know, you get the flu and you're like, damn, I'm out for five days, but then I'm going to be fine. And this is like, all right, day one, two, three, not horrible, but oh God, like four, five, six, the worst I've ever felt, six, seven, okay, I'm going to be done with this, you know, eight, nine, 10, the worst. 
So um, I remember it was right around Easter where I felt like I turned the corner. And I think my biggest, and I'm, I'm totally okay, got my taste and smell back. Although I was like housing some pretzels and jalapeno dip. And my husband was like, <laughs> what? And I think some days, I, I think I've, some days I don't taste as well. Uh, but I think my biggest takeaway is, you know, normally our lives are full of distractions and stuff on a calendar and, you know, kids or people pulling on you to do 8 million things. And so you just don't, for, for me at least, I, you know, you have to be very intentional about stopping and thinking about yourself or your, you know, joy or whatever makes you tick or what you want to do or your passions. And so that was a forced Mm. nearly two weeks and really for all of us just sitting with ourselves at home for months where I was like dang you know I I just had thoughts about why don't I go to the just simple things like why don't I go to the beach more or I'm gonna call up my mom and she's had this treadmill collecting dust and I, I love her and mm. she keeps talking about working out and I know what working out does for me so like mom let's let's roll and and also just outside of my own day job of being a journalist you know I want to continue. I, I really try to shine a spotlight like you do for veterans. I try to do for women and I want to create separately, you know, inspirational television for women. So those were moments I had. And just lastly, like connection, you know, and I think we all appreciate it. I mean, I bet people listening are, you know, they've talked to folks they graduated college with that they haven't talked to or friends they haven't been in touch with. It's been a remarkable time for just realizing how important connection is and how to, you know, you know, feeling very vulnerable. I think vulnerability, like real, true, raw vulnerability leads to full fulfillment and connection. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing it during your journey. I know that it brought strength to other people. I know it brought mm -hmm. a reality check for many people. Um, you know, you and Cuomo are both fit people, you know, you're relatively young, you know, you look to be healthy and to see I mean, relatively young. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, compared to like, <laughs> compared to the president, for I example, can, can. right. Or like yeah, everybody yeah. running for president, basically. Um, but, but, um, you know, when I, when I watched it hit you guys, I think it was really important because like, this is a really big reach, but I, I felt like when the war in Iraq and Afghanistan was happening, People didn't really connect to it unless they had a personal connection until Pat Tillman died. Yeah. When Pat Tillman died, he was somebody that they thought they knew or they rooted for or they understood. And it just created like a really different clarifying personification of the moment or a personalization yeah. of the moment. Personalized it. Yeah. yeah. And I felt like, you know, Cuomo did that on some levels. But frankly, Cuomo is a lot more polarizing than you. Cuomo's got more haters than almost anybody I know. I back him up on the radio. I see it. And I love Chris. But, um, you know, he, he's also a guy that I think, you know, tends to divide people. I don't know too many people who don't root for Brooke Baldwin. Mm -hmm. And and especially as a as a younger woman to see you out there, facing this and just your emotional honesty. Um, mm, you know, one of my thank you. mentors taught me about powerful vulnerability. And I think that's something that you've displayed throughout your career. And especially during this Brooke. like, you know, I, I felt like um, watching you go through this and then seeing you respond, you know, maybe it was like watching your own funeral from afar. Like you had such mm. an outpouring of support. That yes. I, hope, I hope you felt the love. And yes. I hope so that you you really inspired people, and I think that you know I hope some people will will, will remember that experience and will take it more seriously, right? Mm. That's so sweet of you to say. And yeah, I mean, when I started hearing, 
I know I have friends. I know I have some folks that like me, but man, I mean, that whole experience, I was overwhelmed. I would literally like, this is probably TMI, but I would sit in the bathtub when I had my aches because I would sit in hot water to try to distract myself from it. And that is when I would allow myself for 20 minutes to bring my cell phone in the bathtub to start thanking all of the people. It just took me a really long time, but I wanted to make sure if people took the time to reach out to me, then damn it, I wanted to make sure I was saying thank you. And so initially I think I felt, you know, not to get all Brene Brown on this situation, but incredibly vulnerable. And then I just like leaned into vulnerability. And I think to your point about that, like when you lean into vulnerability, man, it, the, the, the outcome of that, and, and, and thank you for the compliment on being authentic, but I also just feel like people are effing smart you know they know when somebody's trying to pull the wool over their eyes and not being real yeah. versus not and i it's the biggest compliment when people meet me and they're like wow you really are the same person i see on tv and mm-hmm. vice versa yeah so yeah i yeah. think that's, that's true of you more than almost anybody i know in in the media and it's refreshing especially in times like this that authenticity is important and that you know that even extends to your coverage of you know the recent chain of events and you've covered protests, and I think you also, you know, bring a unique viewpoint as someone who grew up in the South, who understands yeah. the South. And, you know, I lived in Alabama, I've lived in Georgia, I've lived in other places when I was in the military, and, and to see that as someone who's there is a very different perspective. But you approached it with a very, uh, I think, delicate and thoughtful uh, perspective. But, you know, from, from the standpoint uh, of, of a journalist, but also an American, mm. what do you think of this moment? Right, like this, this moment of protest, this moment of eruption, this moment of pain that's compounded on that other moment of pain. Now you, you personally have come out of one and now you're going into the other. Um, and you know, frankly, you're now in another crosshair because protesters went into the headquarters of the place you work in your hometown, right? So it's come kind of full circle and to see it hit you know, where you grew up in, in, in Atlanta, what, 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 what are your thoughts on this state of affairs? Right no, now? I'll just start there. I mean, that was, that was last Friday. And yeah, I mean, I'll say a couple of things. One, you know, waking up uh, Friday morning to my dear friend, Commander Bobby Jones, who was just couldn't get over the fact that three of our, uh, our correspondent producer and um, cameraman had been arrested live on television. And in the same course of the day, you know, having our, our precious uh, CNN Center in Atlanta looted was gut-wrenching. But I have to check that on the, one, on, the, on the one hand because I am very aware that I am a white woman and I am very aware and, and I'm educating myself on becoming more aware, quite honestly, of just white privilege and white fragility. And I think this whole moment... I hope, Paul, it is truly an awakening for people in this country. And I say that for folks who who have the shade of skin color as mine. I think that growing up in the South, uh, I heard the N-word. I did. And folks in my family or larger family, they may not have always wanted to watch CNN. They might have checked out the other folks. And I am grateful for coming from that background because I, I... I grew up and my mom was always like, Brooke, you should be a judge because mm-hmm. I, my thing was always listening to like, you know, like you, like listening to left, right, and, and, and sort of landing somewhere in the middle. And I have obviously formed my own views on the world and the justice system. But I think over the course of the past couple of months to know that how this country was founded, you think of slavery, then you think of the generations like, of violence that black and brown people in this country have suffered 
And then you add to it COVID, which has disproportionately impacted and killed Black and Brown Americans, and then the killing of George Floyd. And back to my point about, you know, clarity and quiet with oneself, we all have been sitting at home, right? And then all of a sudden, this man is killed with officers' knees on his neck. And you hear in the video, you know, one of the officers is like, he's not responding. I'm not feeling a pulse. Mm -hmm. Like, let's turn him over. And the, the lead officer says no. Mm -hmm. In broad daylight, with bystanders, bystanders saying, you know, stop. And he's not breathing. And calling for his dead mother. Right. And that just should shake anyone to their core. And I hope, as Benjamin Crump, the attorney, said today, that this is the tipping point, this is the, 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 the awakening moment, that this means that because now these four officers have been charged, that that will hopefully lead to justice. And I won't get into a whole spiel on proving intent and second-degree murder, but there's a, there's, a, there's a journey, there's a journey of justice in this case that, that we're all about to take part in. But I hope that in the end, this is the beginning of real systematic change in this mm -hmm. country that folks like me, who look like me, have never had to worry about. Mm -hmm. Cop pulls me over, and P.S. that's happened a few times if I've gone a little too fast in my Buick wagon. <laughs> I have never had to worry. And I want my friends, kids, again, those who don't look like me, to not grow up in fear. Mm. And that's mm. how I feel. Mm. I, I, it's, it's, a really, it's important to hear you expand upon that. And I think it's really important for the conversation to expand um, into white communities, right? White communities that have never had to have this conversation. That's part of what I think is happening now. And you know, I've tried to do my best to to focus on race in this show and to have conversations about race and class yeah. and other divisions that, frankly, you know, don't get covered enough in my view. But I think, you know, your your sensitivity and your personal candor will help us roll through that and, and grow from that. But I want to ask you about another component of this book. You're, you're at CNN, right, mm -hmm. which is right now the target for the president, right? Mm. You, you, my wife used to be really concerned when I would go in to do your show, Chris's show, especially when Trump was really bombing away on CNN. She, yeah. would, she would say, I'm worried about you. Like that walk from the car or the subway into CNN, right? Or even being in the lobby. And I was, you know, I used to be more cavalier about it, frankly, when I didn't have kids. But now that I have kids, you know, I knew that the president was attacking your network. He's attacking your colleagues. He's attacking Zucker, who leads the network. Um, what is it like for you to be in the chair and, and have the, the commander in chief, you know, the leader of the free world attacking you and everything you're working with? I will say that in my 20 years of journalism, I have never had to be walked out of the building with a security guard every single day as I have the last three years. Mm. Um, I will say that you know, I got into this business. I went to Carolina. I did Spanish and journalism. I got into this business to tell stories. I really, I wanted to listen. I wanted to have a front row seat to history. And my goodness, you know, nearly 20 years later to be in that chair for an hour, two hours a day, uh, having to 
fact check at a pace that no one ever thought probably possible, feasible, uh, to see what the president is doing, is saying, how he's dividing, um, hurts on one level just as a human to to one's soul. Mm -hmm. As a journalist, though, I have never, ever been more proud of sitting in that damn chair and telling the truth. And I have never been high-fived or hugged in an airport or walking down the street by strangers in my life as I have the last few years. And I believe that the way he's tried to turn us into the quote-unquote enemy has backfired. And I think people, Americans, who believe in democracy, who believe in right and wrong, who believe in you know, having an open mind, appreciate the role we play and know that it has never been more vital. Mm. And I, I appreciate that. Mm. I appreciate you. And I I appreciate the fact that, you know, that you're helping us humanize it because I think especially under the rampage of the president's tweets or the assaults on your patriotism, people forget that you're human beings and that yeah. you have families and you have people that care about you. And, and there are more stories than you can ever share or your colleagues can ever share, some of which that I've heard you know, in, in private conversations about the, uh, the, the degree of threat that you all face. You know, you're all making, you don't wanna be the story, but I think at some point someone will tell the story about the types of threats. It's almost like we'll never know how many people tried to take a shot at the president because the Secret Service keeps it all quiet, right? We'll never know how many terrorist attacks were prevented in New York and DC. The public will never know how many attacks or threats have been waged at you, your colleagues, your buildings, right? And, And I just wanna, I will say that because I know it, and you all can't always say it. It's almost like you're in the military. Like you can't say it while you're on active duty, but you know, other folks can. So I, I want to yeah. make sure that that is noted and people understand that. But the show is called Angry Americans. We say if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. There's more anger now in America than maybe ever in our lifetimes. Mm. And, and this show is about turning that righteous anger into positive impact in the same way the founders did or Martin Luther King did, or you do on your show. So Brooke Baldwin, what makes you angry? Mm, What makes me angry? I think number one, just injustice, unfairness, you know, people, um, people getting in trouble and that can be translated a million different ways just for something that they had nothing to do with or something that they didn't do wrong. Just seeing that injustice in the world um, really pisses me off. I think also what, what angers me is closed mindedness. You know, the people who live in their one place and they have friends that look and believe and sound like them and they don't want to hear another perspective and they watch the the TV channel that just furthers that perspective and they don't have open ears and, and an open mind that angers me. And lastly, what angers me, Paul, is just people who do have an opinion, people who are pissed off, but who are like, deuces, I'm not going to vote. What's the point of voting? Like, vote. Yeah. Vote. Yeah. 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 Um, you, you've also, you know, you've quietly and humbly led by example, I think, throughout your career. And I've seen that in the way you interact with people off camera. I've seen that just knowing you from, from a distance. 
but you, you know, you, you, you kind of grinded out. I mean, you started in the local uh, news mm. networks, you were in West Virginia, you know, and now you're, you're, you're on the biggest stage in the world at, at, at CNN. And now you, you can see that you were steeled by those experiences as you go through something like, like the virus. But for folks right now that are listening, and maybe they have the virus, maybe they are uh, unemployed, maybe mm. they are trying to figure out what's next. And they're going through a rough spot. You're someone mm. who's gone through a lot of rough spots and you've, you've come out on the other side. What's your ad- advice for them or your lessons learned? I would say lean on those you love. I think back to, again, vulnerability. You have to be open. You have to acknowledge. Don't just, if you're out, if you're out of work or if you're feeling really sick, don't walk around like everything's fine. Let, it, let people know who you can trust let them in, let them know what's going on with you. And I think in your vulnerability, you're going to connect with these people. And then people want to help people mm. at the end of the day, like they just want to be seen and heard and folks want to help. And so if you let someone in on how you could use their help, I would bet that they would find a way, mm. or if they can't find a way they're, you know, uncle's friend who maybe works at that place who he had heard maybe there may be some jobs or here my my buddy over at the hospital said I may be able to get an appointment you know you just have to ask Mm. and then I think my other piece of advice and I this is a little woo-woo but um I've really come into this in the last couple of years like deep breathing if you are feeling like I mean my gosh like the last week you know if you're feeling all the things and the feels and you're just like your heart's racing and you're feeling super stressed out, take five minutes, just start with five, close your eyes and just deep breathe. And there's something with the nervous system. It does the thing and the thing and the thing that makes me feel so much better. Mm. Do that first thing in the morning or before you go to bed. And I'm telling you, it'll just help bring about that clarity to then give you the vulnerability to ask for the help. That's, that's, my that's such good advice. I mean, I, I, I know that I went through times in my life. I remember when I was, you know, struggling to fundraise for IAVA and, you know, I, I talked to a mentor of mine and he said, dude, you're not asking for money. People mm-hmm. see you on CNN. You know, you guys have, you know, all these, these people who are out there fighting. They don't think you need money. You know, you have to ask for help. And in the same way, you know, when I came home from Iraq and I was struggling with, with transitioning, you know, people look at me and say, you know, I'm a big dude. I'm a tough dude. You know, I was in the military. If, if I don't ask for help, people are going to think, shit, like I'm worse off than he is. Right. Yeah. Think that that, they look at you. You give off the appearance yeah. that you're fine. I'm cool. Yeah. I don't need help. See ya. Yeah. yeah. It's, 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 it's part of what we tackled with mental health, especially is, is letting people know that it's a sign of strength to ask for help. And yes. I really believe that. And the breathing you are, you are do, you, do you do that? I do it. I do it. I used to tell people that worked with me, you know, before you go into a room, take a breath. I just uh, stop and take a breath. Yes. And, and especially I remember when we, we were going for, you know, battles in Washington or even going on CNN, like that shit is stressful. Like now I've kind of getting used to it, but just stopping and taking a breath and refocusing. Yep. And especially before I go into a room, I mean, somebody gave me advice also when I was at the White House once the first time I went, I said, you know, do you have any advice? And he said, yeah, walk slow, said, walk slow. And like soak it in and take a breath and don't just go rolling into the Roosevelt room, like yeah. take a breath. And, and that, that breathing really, really does, does matter. And I think that it does. You're a great coach. I wish, 
I, I, I know maybe I've told you this offline. I wish you had a, a late night show all the time. <laughs> like a version of you and Don, but with, uh, oh. I love Don, but Don's got his thing. But like without the suits, without the desks, like, you know. To just, to just kick it and be yeah, real. And, yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. I'll, send, I'll send a note to send Zucker. Send a note to Zucker. Yeah, Attention, yeah. Jeff Zucker. No, I've, I've totally. I've, yeah. yeah, but you yes. know, I, I think that, 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 um, that late night, you know, gig that you guys do is really, really important because they get to see you as people. And I think you get to feel the love from the community, but you bring a joy to everything you do, Brooke. So I want to ask you another question I ask of all of yeah. us. Brooke Baldwin, what makes you happy? What makes me happy? Uh, being anywhere near the water. Again, this is coming from a landlocked Atlanta native. So being anywhere near on by over the water um, or in nature, like I got married on a farm in upstate New York. I just dig it. Um, what else makes me happy? My dog. I have this little almost 17 year old pug. This is my first dog I have ever had. First and only in my life. I got him when I was 24. Three, I just moved to West Virginia. I had just moved out of my corporate housing, which was the Ramada Inn and Suites, and very bougie, and moved into my new apartment in Huntington, West Virginia. And I, I got this little pug because I was lonely. And this little, this little furball man, he has kept me. He has licked many a tears, and um, he's been with me my my for, for you know seventeen years. And God bless. I hope this little guy lives forever, and because it's not gonna be pretty when he doesn't. Mm. And, um, I think I also, what makes me happy is that feeling right after a good sweat, like, man, like working hard, whatever, whatever, whatever it is that I do, I just love pushing my body. And then at the end, just feeling that clearness that I worked, I, I kicked my ass. So now I can just like revel in it and rem just remind myself how strong I am. And I, I work out every morning and I just know that I can take on, it really is like a mental thing. You know, I'm like, all right, if I can do this in the morning, whatever I have going on the rest of the day, I got this. Mm -hmm. That makes me happy. Mm -hmm. I have a very important follow-up question. What is your dog's name? Okay, before I tell you my dog's name, again, recognize that I was 23, and I thought this was super cute. He is a pug. <laughs> His name is Pugsley, which I thought was adorable, but I have my friends lately, they're like, if you have a baby, you're gonna name it Babesley. Like, where's your sense of originality, you know? And, and uh, I, I mean, I call him all the things because he lost his hearing, I don't know how many years ago, so, but Pugsley, it was, it was little Pugsley Baldwin. It was it was a notable admission to your answer, but and then that's much less embarrassing. That Pugsley is like a totally acceptable, Pugsley. you know, expected name for. Yeah, a but pug. I've met like seventeen Pugsleys in my lifetime of the pug. So, come on, Brooke. Come well, on. I love it. I love it. Pugsley deserves uh, his show or her show. Is it a, is it a boy it or girl? His. Okay. Yeah. Pugsley should definitely. I, I think that all CNN. Uh, personalities, anchors, I don't what, what do we call you guys now? See, uh, journalists. Journalists, okay. Anchors, yeah. Sorry. yeah. I see it used interchangeably, right? Like, yeah. not everyone on CNN is a journalist, right? Like, some people are analysts. Well, you're, I would say, yeah, you're an analyst or a commentator or, yeah, uh, commentator, analyst, or an anchor or a correspondent. Right, so I think all of you should bring dogs. I think all of you should bring dogs as often because people are sick of seeing fucking burning buildings and people screaming at <laughs> I each present other. to you my pug. Now and everyone's sick of, sick of looking at Trump and <laughs> um, 
you know, today I think is the counter-programming war will begin. I'm, I'll be interested to see how you and others cover that as I've been recommending that if Biden and, 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 and his allies want to really start to regain the conversation, just go live every day. And he should turn into basically Ellen and bring in a different friend every day. And today bring in Barack Obama and tomorrow bring in Michelle Obama and the next day bring in Jay-Z. Yeah. Just flood the zone with alternative programming. Right. Yeah. And force yeah. you guys as CNN and the other journalists and, and analysts and, and commentators to, to choose or to run both of them. Because right now Trump's just flooding the zone and there's a void of leadership, I think, but also a content void. So, you know, that, that's my recommendation for programming at CNN and for the future potential president of the United States. Um, Duly noted. Yeah. Yeah. But um, you have been incredibly um, generous with your time and with your wisdom and with your energy. And I have to come to the point in the show where I would normally, we'd normally be at the classic car club and we'd be having uh, a drink and you're, uh, you're, by the way, Rosie Perez, her, her cho choice was also champagne. I think she was the mm. only other guest in 62 episodes who chose champagne. Well, it's kind of cheating because if you ask for a cocktail, like, you know, I can't. Oh, it's any, it's any drink. It's any drink. I, I usually but I just, drink or I, I, like my, just quickly, my deal with champagne is I always thought it was the, the drink for fancy people. And then uh, I covered, I, I won't get into it, but I covered a horrible story maybe mm, eight, nine years ago. And I was like, damn, life is too bleeping short. So I'm just going to drink champagne whenever I want to. I think, you, I think you, just, you need to drink. It's America. Drink what you want. Like you can drink like the fancy steak stuff. and champagne. You're, you're expanding my horizon. Part, part of drinking and, and America and smoking and socializing and all of it that we used to do so much more of is about sharing, right? So part yes. of what I ask is because I think it'll give people ideas. It'll give people you know, ways to connect. It'll let them understand a little bit more about you. So I, I feel like, you know, team, uh, we, we were playing a uh, rummy cube the other night and, and uh, somebody said, we're part of team pain. And I was like, what does that mean? Like team champagne. And I was like, okay, I'm, <laughs> team pain. I guess I'm in team ski. Cause I drink whiskey. <laughs> um, but you, you can officially be the president of, of team pain. So with that, I have to give you a presentation of some gifts that I'll send to you through the security uh, uh, apparatus somehow. But, First okay. is some angry American Aww. swag. I spilled a little champagne on it, actually, because when I popped the cork in my garage, it almost took the window out of the Camaro. <laughs> so, so there's that. <laughs> and then um, uh, the, the sponsor of our show is Bravo Sierra. They make military-tested uh, oh, wow. wellness and hygiene products, and there's a microbacterial uh, wipe and deodorant, all kinds of stuff you can use after you run. Or, cool. you know, you can give it to Pugsley if he needs a freshman. <laughs> yeah. cool. And then I always try to think about, you know, something to, to give uh, the guests. We usually pick an American-inspired whiskey. And, and uh, I, I was trying to think about what the heck do I get Brooke Baldwin? Because I can't just get you whiskey. And so I found something that I really like. And I also okay. think it's fun and it's kind of a spin on whiskey. And it's Rock and Rye. Have you tried Rock and Rye? No, yet? no. So it's Rock and Rye. It's union-made with mm. a rye whiskey, raw honey, navel orange, rock candy, and bitters. It's Damn. old school shit that I guess they're bringing back. They make it in Philadelphia, and it's Damn. just awesome, and it's a good time, and it packs a punch, and it's got uh, history. So I think it's fitting for the, the great Brooke Baldwin, uh, who, who brings all it. those things. And then lastly, I love it. the final presentation of Peeps. gifts. 
Yeah, so this is a thing on the show. If you haven't seen it yet, we, we present three colors of peeves. We've been doing it since the beginning of Angry Americans. Yellow, blue, or pink. Which color would you pick, Brooke Baldwin, and why? Blue, because it looks like Carolina blue, and that's where I went to college. Dude. And I'm hoping it turns my tongue blue, because that's fun. <laughs> well, I got to ask you before we go. So there, yeah. there's the, the NBA may be coming back. You're yeah. a big basketball fan. Uh, what are your thoughts on We had David Aldridge on a couple weeks ago. You're a great sports fan. What do, what do you think on the state of affairs here? And, you know, are we going to see even see Carolina basketball this year? Uh, you know who texted me the other day was Roy Williams, the coach of uh, our, our basketball team. Oh, excuse so me. When you drink, when you're drinking champagne with Don Lemon, you know, and <laughs> so, you know, when, when Roy uh, texted yeah. me, no, I mean, uh, like we didn't have the best team, so it's okay. You know, we didn't really have a season. Uh, uh, but no, I, I, I think, listen, like sports is a great pastime and, uh, I love college hoops and it's been such a bummer. I, I'm sure that the NBA and trying to figure out how they're going to pull it off will, will do so in hopefully the, the safest way possible. It's like this catch 22 though, because it's, you know, these guys want to play and people want to pay attention, but man, it's also privileged because they'll have to be probably tested every day and think about what could, you know, how those tests could be otherwise used. But, Oh, I, I, I don't know. I defer to, um, uh, Adam Silver and, and how, however they, they figure out how to pull it off. But of course we miss, we miss sports. We miss just those regular things in our lives, right. That we took so totally for granted. So I hope it comes, I hope it comes back just in a, in a safe way. Mm. Well, we will be rooting for that and we will continue to root for you and mm. um, rooting for you too, friend. I want to thank you for all of your leadership um, because a lot of leadership, in my view, is about sacrifice, and everybody sees the bright lights and you know the fancy studios um, and the, the the fancy wardrobe um, back there. <laughs> but but you know they don't always see the hard work and the sacrifice and, and what you give up. It, it, you're always a person who really does commit to telling the stories of others. You've told so many stories of people who didn't have a voice, mm. and and you know there there are probably you know dozens of clips on, on YouTube of, you know, Brooke Baldwin emotionally reacting to a guest and having a mm. guest. And I don't see that with anybody else. And it's because you keep it real and because you do tell people's stories. So my, my deepest thanks to you, my friend, for your leadership. Mm. I'm glad I'm glad you're healthy. We're going to need you now more yes. than ever. Yes. Um, and I hope by the time we get to um, New Year's Eve, um, it'll be, a, a oh, we'll be, match. we'll be tying, we'll be tying a few on this year. Let, let me tell you what, I've already started sweating. Like, man, they better have a bar open or we'll like commission some, we'll sit in my kitchen if we have to, but we will be on the air. Don Lemon and myself I love it. being a little ridiculous and saying bye bye to 2020. I love it. I love it. Well, if it's possible, I've told Cuomo, I want to bring uh, the Camaro on a tour after this is all over. So yes. take, I'm going to take the Camaro with Cuomo and drive through Times Square and high five his brother. And then uh, maybe we can take it down to New Orleans and uh, I'll do the driving. Uh, you and Don can hang out. We'll put the top down. <laughs> we'll, go, we'll go down Bourbon Street. I love it. I love it. I can't wait. Something Thanks. to look forward to. Thank you. Paul Rykoff, you are a gem. Thank you so much for asking me to come on. It's, it's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you, Brooke. Stay frosty. Thank you. Bravo Sierra.
If you know this show, you know about Bravo Sierra and you need to check them out. Bravo Sierra believes in agile physical product development that ensures consumers get better products faster. We believe that the human body is the most important system and that democratizing product development will be the future of taking ownership of our health and wellness. This is a reason to love Bravo Sierra, and they are a company of the moment. They're the first company that combines leading experts and operators across consumer goods and technology industries into a fast response product development and delivery operation dedicated to the well-being of both the civilian and the military community. This isn't a spin on e-commerce. It's changing the way products are made through data. And it's high quality and affordable for all. Go to bravosierra.com. Quality should not be defined by price points or advertising campaigns. Bravo Sierra makes products of the best quality in the USA with clean and healthy ingredients designed for the most demanding consumers and affordable for all. I am the most demanding consumer and I love everything that they put together. I love their shaving foam. I love their body wash. I love their deodorant. I love this company. Check it out. It's really good stuff. It looks super cool and it makes a perfect gift for Father's Day. And Bravo Sierra is extending their partnership with the U.S. military, academic institutions, and nutritional experts to unlock human performance for elite athletes in and out of the military. They call it social manufacturing. You can actually join our field testing program with me, Flo Groberg, and lots of other people if you go to bravosierra.com. And remember, 5% of their revenue goes to morale, welfare, and recreation programs that offer quality of life programs dedicated to the well-being of our service members, veterans, and their family. They need especially now. And Bravo Sierra not only makes great products, they always give back. So Father's Day is coming. Check out their products, maybe their new unscented deodorant. And if you go to their website right now, you can get two free antibacterial wipes. You don't even have to pay anything. Just go sign up and you get two free tactical showers. They are tactical showers, antibacterial body wipes, some of the coolest stuff you will get delivered and you will be happy you did. Men's Health called it a game-changing grooming line, and I call it the same thing. Go to bravosierra.com right now. Field tested by members of the U.S. military and by yours truly. Made in the USA and kicking ass, just like this show, just like our community, and just like this country. Go to bravosierra.com now. There's plenty of reason to be angry. Now, for everyone everywhere and it can burn hot sometimes too hot all that hate's gonna burn you up kid keeps me warm but there's a way to turn it there's a way to channel it there's a way to harness it and always a way to make an impact it's time to turn that anger into positive impact it's time to be a helper always look for the helpers there will always be helpers you know even just on the sidelines because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. Every show, I offer a way to convert your righteous, understandable anger into positive action. A positive action that shows that angry Americans can also be impactful Americans. An action that will channel your energy, make you feel good, and make a difference. And like this show, our actions are always packed with the four eyes. Integrity, information, impact, and inspiration. Don't you know... Talking about a revolution sounds Don't you These are the times that try our souls. And they come after a brutal winter and a spring of fear, sacrifice, drama, and loss. But there's no time or use in whining about it. 
especially in this moment. Like every generation of Americans before us, we must act. We must rise to the moment. But how? What do we do? Our friend Wes Moore broke it down. And I wonder, you know, wonder what your thoughts are on those conversations that white parents need to be having with their kids. I think it's, it's both the conversations that they need to be having with their kids and also the example that they're setting for their children. Amen. It's understanding the fact that, that, that they are watching you in the same way that Bakar and my kids are watching us. And it's not just about, you know, where I, I think oftentimes when, you know, and I've had, you know, kind of the, the flurry of people who have reached out to me this weekend and, uh, you know, and asking, you know, what can I do? What can I do? Um, and my, my honest answer is, I, I think, you know, the answer It's just demand the same type of treatment and understanding that you would demand for your own children. Amen. There's there, you know, you, you would, you would, you would stop at nothing to defend and protect your children. You would stop at nothing to make sure that your children have every single opportunity open to them. You would, you would stop at nothing at breaking down any type of systemic barrier that stands in the way between your child and their God-given destiny. And what we're saying and what I'm asking all of my friends to take on is that I want you to have the same aggression for my child. We know these things are real. We know the history of systemic racism, the history of everything from housing discrimination and, and the history of, 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 of transportation discrimination, lending discrimination. We know all these things are real. We know that people are not policed in one neighborhood, that they were policed in the same neighborhood. And then the neighborhoods that I grew up in, that these are neighborhoods that were over-policed and under-resourced, and we knew it. But the question became, how were people going to stand around and tolerate that? How are people going to stand around and tolerate that level of inequity? And so to my friends, I'm asking you, take the same aggression for my child as you would have for your own. Wes Moore is a voice we need badly right now. He joined us back in episode 10, this time last year, right before Father's Day. Go back and check it out. If you heard it before, listen to it again, given the new context of our new world. And hear the words of Wes Moore and Barack Obama and Eric Holder and Killer Mike and so many others and act. The NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund is America's premier organization fighting for racial justice. Through litigation, advocacy, and public education, LDF seeks structural change to expand democracy, eliminate disparities, and achieve racial justice in a society that fulfills the promise of equality for all Americans. LDF also defends the gains and protections won over the last 75 years of the civil rights struggle and works to improve the quality and diversity of judicial and executive appointments. The Legal Defense Fund, the LDF, was founded in 1940 by legendary civil rights lawyer and later Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, and it became a separate organization from the NAACP in 1957. The lawyers at the Legal Defense Fund developed and executed the legal strategy that led to the Supreme Court's decision in Brown v. Board of Education, widely regarded as the most transformative and monumental legal decision of the 20th century. And they also have a police funding database. Policing reform involves changing how police departments operate, especially how they provide public safety services to communities. From a civil rights perspective, the goals of policing reform are to change policing policies and practices to ensure that individuals are treated fairly and without regard to race, national origin, religion, age, gender, sexual orientation, disability, or other characteristics protected by the Constitution or civil rights law. 
And policing reform focuses on a variety of police policies and practices, including the use of force, stop, search, and arrest practices, and internal and external systems designed to hold police departments and individual officers accountable. And launched in 2015, the Thurgood Marshall Institute, LDF, developed a policing reform campaign to promote unbiased and accountable policing at the national, state, and local levels. They utilize research, public education, policy advocacy, litigation, community organizing, and communication strategies to realize some key goals. Number one, eliminating racially biased policing. Number two, promotion of promising policing practices and accountability systems like mandatory data collection, training on bias, and expansion of the roles of prosecutors and the elimination of racial bias in the criminal justice system. Number three, demilitarize police and remove or limit police in schools. Number four, building capacity for communities of color to create governance structures and toolkits that allow them to make decisions relating to policing and community-led public safety strategies. Go to NAACPLDF.org. That's NAACPLDF.org. NAACPLimaDeltaFoxtrot.org. There's also a petition, and you can add your name to demand justice for George Floyd. The LDF stands in solidarity with protesters demanding accountability from the police. And residents must be afforded their rights to protest without fear of violence or repercussions. They demand that all protesters be protected and that any law enforcement engagement with protesters should be focused on ensuring the safety of protesters and guarding their constitutional rights. You can add your name to insist that officials ensure safe policing in times of unrest. It's good for our communities. It's good for our police. It's good for our country. Change is happening, and you can help make it the right kind of change, and you can help it come faster. You can turn the fire into one that doesn't burn us down, but one that keeps us warm. You can help fight systemic racism that led to the death of George Floyd and so many others. And even more powerful than being in the streets, you can be a part of a movement from now on and forever. So step up and be a helper. Support the frontline protesters and the frontline police officers, and the frontline of America's future, and be a part of the change you seek. Go to NAACPLDF.org and keep the right kind of fires burning. Because finally the tables are starting to turn. Talking about the revolution. If you got a story to tell or a resource to share, find us on social media and use the hashtag AngryAmericans and let me know. Don't just be angry, especially now. Be active. Talking about a revolution. All right, big thank yous to a few folks that helped make this hot episode happen. It is getting hot where I am. It's probably getting hot where you are. I actually recorded big sections of this from inside my car without air conditioning. So I am with you in spirit and I am with you in body. But I want to thank a couple of folks that brought the heat and helped make this important episode happen. First off, Brooke Baldwin. Watch her on CNN Daily. If you end up home on New Year's Eve, party with her. Follow her on Twitter. She's a fantastic journalist, a fantastic patriot, a fantastic role model, and a very cool person. So my biggest thanks to Brooke and to Lisa and her entire team at CNN. Massive thanks to the whole Righteous Media team, especially Mighty Mercy Rich, who's always bringing the heat, creative Chris Rosenthal, who's drawing our path through the fire, 
Bill Schultz for keeping the fires burning at just the right levels. Uh, big thanks to Eric Carlson, the newest member of the Righteous team. Great to have you on board, man. And Bravo Sierra. They always handle the heat. They are fantastic. I'm grateful for their support for this show. Uh, Father's Day is coming up, so check them out at bravosierra.com, and you get 15% off if you tell them Angry Americans set you. Big thanks to our Patreon members, the vigilant, the very vigilant, the most vigilant. I've been kicking them exclusive content. I've been giving them an inside look inside uh, how we're doing the pandemic recordings. I've been giving them a heads up on guests. I've been taking their questions. So if you're not already a patron, go to angryamericans.us or look at the description in this link and join our Patreon group. I've been sharing a look inside my garage. I've been giving out other goodies and you can help support this critical work. For just five bucks a month, you can be a patron, you get exclusive access, and you help support independent media. Independent media has never been more important. Media like this can only survive with your support. So please support our sponsors and join our Patreon community now. Lots of folks have already joined, and we'll do a Zoom, maybe maybe have a cocktail hour and some other stuff coming up. So look for that if you are a Patreon member or look for us on social media. And it's time to thank a few listeners every week. Even when it's hot out, I thank a few angry Americans just for listening. I'll make you famous. And I will make you famous. I always want to hear from you. You can hit us up on social media. You can send us an email. Or we have a hotline, 833-33-ANGRY. 833-33-ANGRY. This is a hot episode. It's a hot time. The heat is rising. So give us a call on our hotline, and we might make you famous. Call, tweet, post, and social, and I will make you famous. Do it. Seriously, do it. Do it. Do it. I'll make you famous like my friend Marissa Darden, who is a fighter for truth and justice. She is my adopted little sister. I love her. She is a dear and treasured part of our family and a true inspiration. And she is a fighter for justice. She is fighting for reform. She is fighting the good fight. And she passed the Ohio bar this week after passing the bar in two other states. And it was her birthday. She's a warrior for justice. And I love her. And I'm inspired by her. Marissa, I just want to send you the biggest congratulations on passing the bar and a very happy birthday and thanks for your support. Also, big thanks to our friend Bob Woodruff. You may remember him from episode 32. He is an inspiring journalist who's at ABC. He splits his time between New York and China and other parts of the world. But he sent me a note this week and said he loves the pod. He said it's one of his favorite podcasts. So my thanks to Bob Woodruff. He continues to be an inspiration to me and so many people. All the best to Lee and your entire family, Bob. Thanks for listening. Also, thanks to my friend Tom Keefe, who is a Vietnam vet and a longtime friend and mentor. He's in Lodun, Tennessee, originally from New York. He's a husband, a father, an Army Nam vet, a UIW member, a biker, a gun owner, and a yellow dog Democrat. Uh, I don't even know what a yellow dog Democrat is, but he's a cool guy and an inspiration to me. Been a great friend and mentor. And he wrote a tweet and said he listened to the episode of Angry Americans yesterday with Martha Raddatz. Another solid show from Paul Rykoff. My man, Keith, thank you to you. Thanks to Michael Ann. And hopefully we'll have the Yanks back sometime soon. Thanks, Tom. And thanks to Rachel Cunningham, who I think was in Hanoi and is now back stateside. I'm not sure. But she is a University of Chicago alum. She is an activist and she's a powerful voice. She wrote a tweet and said, take time to listen to Paul Reichoff and Martha Raddatz on the New Angry Americans podcast. They discuss NASA, the COVID-19 pandemic, and the state of journalism. Now more than ever, listen in. Thanks, Rachel. You've been in our corner for a long time. I hope wherever you are, you are staying frosty. 
Also, congrats to all the graduates. To so many of you, I know this is a hard time to be a graduate, but in these tough times, you are more important than ever. You are more inspiring than ever. And I just want to congratulate you, especially the vets who are using the GI Bill and the family members, the kids that are using the GI Bill, and especially the families of the fallen that are using the GI Bill. People that work with TAPS and Bonnie Carroll and so many other groups, you are true inspirations. And I just want to congratulate you on graduating. We need you now more than ever. This country needs you now more than ever. But until then, celebrate socially responsibly and stay away from the Ozarks. And a big thanks to some of our Guess the Guest winners. If you don't know the deal, every Wednesday on social media, we post a contest. Guess the Guest. I give you a little tease and I tell you a hint on who the next guest is. And if you guess the guest correctly, you will win a prize. So Jace Austin recently won. Uh, she is somewhere in the USA. I want to give her a big shout out. She guessed Martha Raddatz. So did Claire Owens, my old friend and colleague, who is a fantastic human being, a fantastic American. Claire, big shout out to you and your mom. Thanks for all that you do. And congratulations. I think you got the last three in a row, including Brooke Baldwin. So my congratulations and my thanks to Claire. If you guys have any guest suggestions, fire away. We got some good ones coming up this summer, but I always want to hear who you want to hear. So fire a note and use the hashtag Angry Americans, but especially this summer. I like it. I love it. I want more of it. I'm grateful to all of you, and I am especially and always grateful to my wife and two boys. You know, no matter what happens, there's always beauty out there. If you look hard enough, I've talked about it, even in the toughest times. And the robin's eggs have now hatched. I told you about the three robin's eggs that are outside the window. Well, they have hatched. There are now chicks outside, and the boys are really excited about that. And they were exceptionally excited about the rocket launch. It happened after a delay and a scrubbing. It happened. And for a moment... In the midst of all the chaos that was happening, we were all united and inspired as Americans. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Liftoff of the Falcon 9 and Crew Dragon. Go NASA. Go SpaceX. Godspeed. Bob and Doug. America has launched. And so rises a new era of American spaceflight, and with it the ambitions of a new generation continuing the dream. 20 seconds into flight, stage one propulsion is nominal. Even in the darkest of times, robin's eggs are hatching, babies are being born, rockets are being launched, and school is almost over. So keep pushing through the storm. Please keep bringing the calm. Please keep bringing the positive attitude to each other. And if you're out in the streets, especially, look out for each other. Whether you're a protester, a police officer, a National Guard soldier, or a National Guard soldier that is also a police officer, and when you're off duty, you're a protester, be safe out there, be kind out there, and stay frosty out there. And please continue to tell your friends to check this podcast out. If you're on an Apple device, please leave the show a quick review right now. Just do it right after this. Do me a solid. You got a little extra time. So instead of watching another episode of Housewives, leave me a quick review. Shut off the cable news and leave me a quick review. Subscribe now and we will have the episodes hot and fresh waiting for you every Thursday. We try to get them to you in the evening on Thursday. I usually leave Bill a mess of a podcast. He cleans it up cooks it up right and delivers it sometime in the evening or night on Thursday. So after you finish dinner or you put the kids to bed, pour yourself a drink on Thursday night and dig into Angry Americans or save it for Friday night, save it for your weekend. 
But please leave us a review and tell your friends. It's free, and we will have it hot and waiting for you every Thursday night. And keep the feedback coming on social media. Follow us on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. I see you, I hear you, and I'm with you. And you can go to angryamericans.us for our newsletter and all the previous episodes. You can also see video of me and Brooke. You can see inside the garage. You can see my Camaro. And you can go all the way back to 60 episodes of Angry Americans, from Rosie Perez to Wes Moore and everybody in between. It's good pandemic viewing. We'll adapt, improvise, and overcome until then. Stay tuned, subscribe for free, and share. I'm grateful for all the time you give us, and I'm grateful that you're part of this movement. We're going to stick together, we're going to grow this, and we're going to move forward, no matter what happens. Picket lines and picket signs Don't punish me with brutality Talk to me so you can see And it's okay to be angry, especially now. And no, you're not alone. We're all a little angry. That's because we're paying attention. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Stay vigilant, America, and stay frosty, especially when it gets hot out there. Stay frosty. Right on.